The following podcast is brought to you by Vite Ramen. Use offer code BROKENSILICON to get 10% off tasty, healthy, and easy-to-make ramen orders at the link below. Or use the offer code BROKENSILICON to get 25% off Windows keys at another sponsor, cdkeyoffers.com. Links for both are in the description. Now on with the show. Welcome to Broken Silicon, a gaming hardware podcast. I am your host, Tom, and uh, I am joined today as I am every other week with my co-host, Dan. How you doing, Dan? Uh, I'm pretty good. How are you? I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing bad. I'm not doing bad. Pretty good. Pretty, pretty good. That's a weird combination of like a mobster accent and Larry David. Yeah. Yeah. There's an odd choice I made there. But you know, this it was an odd choice for opening up what will be an odd episode as for what we usually do. Um, so full disclosure, I mean, like I'm going on vacation, or I guess most people who hear this, I went on vacation uh, the weekend before you're hearing this. And... As such, there was kind of some juggling of what we would do. Like, I was seriously like telling my significant other, like, maybe I'll just record an episode one morning before we go <laughs> do stuff. And she was fine with it, of course. But I, I, I need a break. We, we, we all need breaks sometimes. And as luck would have it, I actually was able to get the founder of Silicon Lottery that just closed its doors on for a kind of tell-all interview about founding the company, what it was like running it, why it was closed last weekend. But I actually recorded next to the AI guest we just had on. But it was a shorter episode, and I don't want to just do a guest drop what would normally be on a week that we have the news episodes because then we'll just get behind. And I figured, well, here's what we can do. We can cover the news of the last kind of week and a half. And, and then we can combine what would be a shorter news episode with one of the main stories that was intended to be on the, the closing of Silicon Lottery with the actual discussion being the interview with that guest. So that's what we're going to do. So basically the first third to half of this episode will be kind of half of an, of an episode. We're not going to do any wrap up either. Well, we will do corrections and omissions and like half as many stories as usual. And then there will be an interview with someone who ran his own, you know, gaming CPU binning company. And I think mm -hmm. that'll be pretty exciting for everyone. So that's what we're going to do. And before we continue, though, just keep in mind, then we're going to try to only cover stories that we don't think the information will change before this comes out to the public feeds. Of course, Patreon supporters get this early, but we'll see, you know, <laughs> you know, so just bear in mind that we're going to mostly give our opinions on things that have been going on in the past week. But if something changes, you know, we'll address it in an upcoming Die Shrink video or the next news episode. Anyways, I think that makes sense. Let us then get into corrections and omissions. I don't know whatever man writes him. And he says, in the latest podcast, number 120, Tom mentioned that a $400 7600 XT is stronger than the consoles right now. Did he mean a 6700 XT? Well, I would 
kind of mean that, although it's not that much stronger than the consoles. But he said, because the 7600 XE doesn't exist yet, as far as I'm aware. <laughs> and it, is this supposed to be an RDNA 2 refresh card? Uh, maybe, actually. But it's just, you know, what's coming in the next Radeon generation, right? When I was doing that RDNA 3, RDNA 4 performance leak that came out, I think, a few weeks ago, I estimated what I believe the performance of the 7600 XT will be based on my conversations with sources. So a $400 card about the performance of a 6700 XT, roughly, maybe a little better, coming out next year, it's not out yet. Yeah. And I just talk about it sometimes like that. I'm like, you know, eventually you'll have an 8700 XT. doesn't mean it's out yet. It's just me kind of saying, hey, keep in mind this level of performance will be you know, whatever in the future. AC666 writes in, and he says, I'm curious to, as to why Apple would potentially have late neural engine integration as a reason for ditching Intel. It first came into iPhones in 2017 with the A11 Bionic. Well, Intel have had their GNA since Icelic in 2019. Right, so two years later, man. Though it's no secret they wanted it out earlier. That said, I know Apple's neural engine and GNA are different things, so perhaps next time an AI expert comes on, you could ask them to better explain the differences in their architectures and use cases. Well, I just had one on, and offline, he's like, oh, it's just so much stronger mm -hmm. what's in Apple's neural engines right now than anything Intel has coming until Meteor Lake, basically. And so if you're Apple, remember, you have to design things ahead of time and plan for when they launch. My understanding is they kind of wanted to launch their Apple processors instead of Intel, I think like a year before they did, but Apple's known to sometimes do their first generation and then never release it and then iterate on it again after widespread internal testing. And I think that's probably kind of what happened, you know? And so that's why they never cited it as a reason. Like, you know, maybe Intel had something, but it just wasn't soon enough. And I think they saw the writing on the wall that they were going to be, high, be behind in performance for what they wanted. And they, they weren't catching up anytime soon. And they also had the plan for the fact that maybe 10 nanometer would never work. <laughs> and now it does, but, you know, yeah, no one knew it would ever work, you know, um, or most people didn't. Deleted user writes in, he says, listening to Broken Silk on 118 at the one hour, 42 minutes and 52 second mark, the COD 4 Wii conversation about nearly impossible to aim complaints for reviewers. Most of my gaming during that gen was actually on a Wii. And I recall a lot of Xbox 360 biases back then. I played both the Wii and 360 versions of Call of Duty 4, World of War, Black Ops, and Modern Warfare 3. I can definitely say that the control steam was superior on the Wii, with a Wii mode in Nunchuck. While also allowing more traditional control options, you could customize your sensitivity in Dead Zone, similar to what was possible on PC, and dial in a better combination of sensitivity and aim motion than you could on 360. Whenever I played against friends in the 360 after long sessions of COD and the Wii, it, we, it was definitely playable. However, those graphics were crap compared to the 360, and you had two-thirds of the kill streaks on the Wii version. I assume that means they... I think I remember that, that they didn't have the helicopter in the online version of Call of Duty 4 on the Wii because they just couldn't <laughs> handle a helicopter flying while you were playing. That's great. Um, although Modern Warfare 3 brought most of the features to be parody with the graphical superior counterparts. Anyways, my point is this. If you're saying comparing the Wii version of Call of Duty 4 to a PS4 version of Ratchet and Clank, a Rift Apart is the comparison, then I think Ratchet and Clank would be fine. You know what? I disagree. <laughs> you just described all these things that version couldn't do, which was kind of my point. And I'm going to... I didn't play the Wii as much as you, I guess, but I'm going to disagree that the, the Wii mote 
worked very well. I guess maybe you could tune your dead zones, but the 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 Wiimote just wasn't super accurate a lot of the time. You know, I remember back then there were some people I knew who sweared by the Wiimote, but I don't know. I, I honestly didn't use the Wii almost at all, so I really don't have a dog in this fight. Uh, I don't know about any bias. I I don't know. Uh, I think we're going to have to agree to disagree on that one. And my point stands that even when you were saying, which the comparison was, I don't think you can just say you'd get Ratchet and Clank or Rift Apart working on a PS4 if the comparison, you know, like the comparison I made is, well, yeah, I know they got, for example, somehow Call of Duty 4 to work on the Wii, but it was had half of the features missing and looked terrible. It was an entirely different experience. I don't know that you can really say they really fit the full Call of Duty 4 experience on there. I never said they could have put some version of Ratchet and Clank on the PS4. I'm just saying there would definitely have to be some severe compromises. And I feel like half of your corrections were describing severe compromises. <laughs> I don't know. Anyways, though, let us move forward. Um, then a couple more warm-up reader mails before the first story. AC666 writes in again, and he says, Was your doggo Reese named after Reese's peanut butter and chocolate? Because one of my favorite American brand chocolates is the Reese's Nut Bar with peanuts, peanut butter, caramel, chocolate, and sugar. Also, I live in the UK, so my chocolate doesn't taste disgusting. First of all, you lobster back. How dare you insult America? Second of all, I will say this. There's plenty of good chocolate in America, but the standard, I think Europeans see Hershey as the standard, and I think it tastes like garbage compared to other options. Yeah, it's not great. When I eat it, I'm just like, it's just like a sugar bar which you know hershey's was successful because they found a way to mass produce chocolate cheaply so i don't think it's meant to be high end or great but reesey as far as i'm aware is named after reese's peanut butter cups because of her coloring but it wasn't named by me it was named by the shelter and uh never insult american candy again i will say lost the revolutionary war so get out of here i will say better dog naming than a lot of shelters do where they just like do a weird theme that they like repeat the name over and over. I think that's what a lot of shelters. Really? I don't know if they repeat the name over and over, but that's what I, that's the feeling I get that they do where you, if you're ever like looking at dog adopt a pet things, like all of the dogs that come from a shelter at a similar time always have like some name on a weird theme for some reason. Yeah. I haven't looked at one for quite a long time, so I can't say. Yeah, I'm not looking to adopt a dog, so it's been a while. Speaking of that lobster back, we have someone here whose name is the medium lobster. Although we don't know if she's British. I don't remember. I believe there was something. Let's get into it. Hi, Tom and Dan. Love the show. I wanted to write in regarding your comments on phones being boring and how the folding genre of phones is pointless unless you want to crease. I hear this sentiment a lot from the male tech space, and while I agree with the obvious that Apple's hardware is impressive, I feel obligated as a woman to point out how you're wrong about the Z Flip and Android being pointless. I've always looked for the smallest phones I could find while not sacrificing functionality and features. I think me and you are mostly the same in that way, Dan. Uh, Even with my most recent phone, the non-Pixel 3, I would always have a slab of glass hanging out and falling on my front pocket, worry about sitting on it and snapping it on my back pocket. Since getting the Z Flip 3, I feel like I can carry my phone on me without worrying about it. I'll never go back to the slab candy bar phone. The crease is entirely not noticeable up to the first day of use. The ability to decrease the footprint of my phone on my person is revolutionary for me. Just thought you could use a different perspective on this. Peace and love, Holly which I did follow up with this person, like, really? Like, 
Like this, like an iPhone mini would stick out of your pocket, but this won't be too thick. And she said, yes, for my figure, that is the situation. I know women's clothing is (laughs) a lot of the time designed around not having functional pockets for some reason. So I guess that is a point to bring up. I mean, the thing I'm concerned about and the thing that I've seen from most reviewers is that the crease gets worse over time. I mean, and if that doesn't happen, then I would say the foldable screen technology is to a point where I don't think it's a gimmick that (laughs) begins to suck after having it for like three to five months. You know, I also did watch an iPhone review from the YouTube channel, Mobile Tech Reviews. Mm -hmm. She does excellent phone and laptop reviews. And she was reviewing the new iPhones and actually brought up the same product. So she says it doesn't break as well on Mobile Tech Review. Okay. So I guess maybe we need to reevaluate some of this. I I just assumed all folding phones were unreliable and break easily because the first few did. But I guess I haven't really kept up on it. Um, We appreciate... The input, medium lobster. Although, again, I do not appreciate you lobster backs. All right, let us move on then to story number one. Video Cards confirms RX 6600 non-XT performance and launch. Moore's Law is Dead confirms pricing and volume. On the evening of October 4th, a Moore's Law is Dead content confirmed that the press was just briefed on the RX 6600, and that it indeed performed around what was expected and was launching October 13th. Well, on October 5th, video cards unsurprisingly revealed the entire scoop. <laughs> In summary, the 6600 non-XT has 1,792 stream processors, 12.5% less than the 6600 XT. However, it has a guaranteed game clock of 25% lower than the 6600 XT, and correspondingly, only a 132-watt TDP. All of this is assuredly done to keep the power low enough for cheap coolers, VRMs, and only requiring a single six-pin connector. It is also assuredly clocked this much lower than the XT to keep its performance noticeably lower despite having the same bandwidth, the same 8 gigabytes of VRAM, and the same 32 megabytes of Infinity Cache. Its performance then is around a 3060 and 1080p, so probably about 10% weaker than a 6600 XT at most, and is likely to lose to the 3060 and 1440p by 3-6%. to The only thing we don't know is the price, although this is something Moore's Law is Dead is working on. Oh, and yes, before we recorded this broken silicon, I confirmed the price. The current plan is to have the 6600 XT have a price of $330, $10 less than the fake MSRP of the 3060, while having the same performance and using less energy. I could see that changing, everybody. Like, I could see them, if they want to, price it the same as the 3060. Or I could also see them price it at 320 320 is a price I could easily see, but... It seems like 330 is the price right now. And considering it's a six-pin card that's the same performance as the competition, I don't see why they wouldn't do that given the current demand. The only other thing worth talking about is that it says up to eight gigabytes for it, technically. Hmm. Yeah, I think we can assume that they might launch a $250 for a gigabyte version if they really wanted to. But uh, I don't know. It just feels weird having any four gigabyte card above $200, but just me. So I don't know, Dan, what do you think about all this? We know it's coming out. Uh, it's coming out, uh, well, when this podcast drops in a few days, we know it's performance. We know it's price roughly. Yeah, I mean, I think even though we're recording this early, we can pretty much talk about it with confidence. What do you think about the 6600? 
I would say if the 6600 can stay below the 3060 uh, street price, then it's a decent card. If it can't, I think the 3060 is probably a better option, but... I think it almost assuredly will, though, right? Because the 30... And, and I I checked today, you know, as of recording this, the 3060 is, like, not available to buy. Like, yeah. they're not shipping this to desktop. And if it is available, even the ones that are sold out have prices between $500 and $600. Whereas the uh, 6600 XT is staying between 400 and 500 usually. So... If that's the case, then I imagine the 6600 non-XT will have a street price between 350 to 400 and there will be some at MSRP. And, you know, I told one of our friends, Drew, who has a 480 that seems to be falling apart, that, look, if all you care about is 1080p, I actually think this is the card to get over the 6600 XT or the 3060 because they're all overkill for 1080p, and yet they're not really capable of 4K and barely, I guess they can do 1440p, so... If you take away 10% of the price and 15% or 15% of the price and 10% of the performance, and then you just also make it use that much less energy, I think this is the card to get if you can get it at 330 for anyone. This is the card for people who just need a card because their card's breaking and they don't want to give in to scalper prices. It's not ideally priced. I think in a normal world, this would have been 200 or 250. Yeah. But I also think it's not marked up too much. And at least if you're, you know, the people I would imagine getting this are, yeah, people with a 480, people with a 970. Those people, you're getting a doubling of performance at lower power. It's 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 okay to pay 330 And assumably, you could sell your 480 for about the same price on eBay anyways. Yeah, and if you're not going to be gaming at above 1080p, there's, there's almost no reason to go. I'd say something like the 6600 would be like, Honestly, the maximum amount of performance you would really need, like looking at the, at least this leak of benchmarks, the only one that has an, I mean, no, they're all, never mind, they're all a, well above 60 frames per second. And if you're a mm -hmm. high, if you're a high refresh gamer, I mean, if you cut things to high or some of your settings to high or medium, you'll probably be able to get 120 frames per second in 1080p in most games. So. I just don't think you need anything stronger than what the 6600 offers if you're still gaming in 1080p. And I don't see what that extra 10% is going to give exactly. you from the 6600 XT. And if you're above 1440p or like really looking to game at that level, I just think you probably want a 3070. Yeah, and you know, if the <laughs> if the street price of the 3060 is going to be somewhere between I don't know, let's assume like uh, let's just say a hundred dollars above this street price. Then I don't see why you wouldn't go with the sixty six hundred. Once again, if the thirty sixty is a little bit more expensive, I think the thirty sixty is probably a better choice. It has more RAM and mm -hmm. it's slightly stronger. But if... I pay ten percent more for it, or maybe even twenty. But I'm not paying thirty forty percent more. Yeah. And yeah, when I look at the settings here from video cards, which I believe comes from official uh, press decks. Like, yeah, all their benchmarks here, like Battlefield 5 on Ultra, 165 frames, like Borderlands 3 maxed out 96. So you're in 1080p. You, half of these settings can be turned down and you won't tell the difference. Probably not even in 4K, but in 1080p, you certainly won't tell the difference. I mean, in 1080p, you might as well game at high settings. I mean, look at this. Like, yeah, like Resident Evil Village running 175. I, I mean... 
Yeah, and that's this would destroy 1080p gaming at high settings. Yeah, and that's a good point <laughs> to bring up. Uh, there's a, a lot of setting it's ar- settings. It's arguable if or you probably don't even get a benefit in 1080p uh, with high to ultra settings in a lot of these games. So, yeah, the only other thing I'll add to this is my understanding, and I covered this in the a leak I put out uh, the previous week is that the 6600 now i can never be 100 percent sure on exact day volume like i don't know if maybe it could slip away because like that 3060 flood video i did the 3060s uh, most of them got there a week later than expected but it was still in august you know so i don't know if the, most of the 6600 volume due to just constant supply chain issues and shipping issues going on because of covid I, I don't know if it's gonna miss to like you know despite the launch being, you know, October 13th, if it won't actually get there till the 20th. But I think it should be a similar launch to the 6600 XT. And as I keep telling people, no, I could have gotten a 6600 XT at MSRP hours after it came out. I like, I got up late that day and it was still in stock in some places close to MSRP. So I hear this should actually in quarter four have more volume, quite a lot more volume than the volume of 6600 XT from the last quarter. So this seems like something you should be able to get. So just Try to get it if you need something to replace like a 970. Yeah, especially if your card's starting to fall apart, which, yes. Some people, some people probably are. <laughs> yeah. Evil Steve at Hardware Unboxed. And his, by the way, his profile picture is Steve from the Far Cry 6. Oh. Uh, I don't know if anyone sees Hardware Unboxed put out a Far Cry 6 benchmark, and he put his face on the villain, <laughs> which I thought was actually pretty funny. Uh, but that is this guy's profile character. Um, hello, Tom, and Tom's guest, or sometimes Dan. I'm really curious about what Jensen is cooking up in his kitchen right now. Based off of your leaks, AMD seems to be trying to bite off a huge chunk of the gaming GPU market with RDNA 3, and Intel will soon be trying to do the same with ARC. Additionally, Intel is probably going to want to push NVIDIA out of the laptop market in favor of all Intel systems. Oh, yeah, they are. I don't doubt that NVIDIA is financially huge enough that they can weather the storm, but based off of Daniel Nemney's comments on Jensen's ego, they likely don't want to. So I got to ask, what is Team Green doing? Is Lovelace more special than we are led to believe? Well, Lovelace is, you know, from what we're hearing, going to be a bigger boost than Ampere. So it's not bad. It's also probably a year out, though, at least, so... Yes, it's probably a year from now at least. Um, but so I don't think Lovelace is really the concern, though. It was or something else in the oven that we don't know about. Well, evil Steve, I'm glad you asked because it brings us to story number two. And video really does seem to be working on a super refresh before Arc launches. And I have a video cards link here, and he kind of summarizing some of what he says. He says, according to a tweet by Hungzing2020, NVIDIA will indeed launch an RTX 3090 Super early next year, a 3070 Ti 16 gigabyte, and also an RTX 2060 12 gigabyte refresh Turing GPU. Kapoit 7 Kippy, on the other hand, expects four SKUs, 3090 Super, 3080 Super 12 gigabyte, 3070 Super 8 gigabyte and a 3060 Super 12 gigabyte. Meanwhile, Moore's Law is dead himself, can't confirm NVIDIA is considering a host of models and has not made the final decisions yet. So I don't want to regurgitate everything that I believe I will have said in a video that should come out before this podcast talking about the 30 uh, Super Series with Ampere. But a major point of that video will be, or has been, that NVIDIA can do whatever they want. And I think me and you are kind of skeptical of the Super Series at least being something uniform and big for a while. But I can say that at this point, I've talked to enough people that technically it's not 100%. I mean, remember the 3080 Ti rumors? 
That was rumored before Ampere even launched. And then half a year later, yeah. the 3080 Ti was actually announced. So keep in mind that NVIDIA, and it's not because a lot of those people leaking it had bad info. It's just NVIDIA was like, are we going to launch it? Are we not? Should we? Now we don't want to. It's just, it's just a different cut version of an existing die. So like, what I'm saying is, well, we know a 3090 Super would be the fastest memory clocks, the full die, and the fastest core clocks they can get away with. So we don't even really talk about what that would be. But it's up to NVIDIA if they launch that. You know, there was a 2080 Ti Super, by the way, that they only ever used for GeForce Now. It was a 12 gigabyte 2080 Ti with a few more cores enabled, I believe. They just never launched it to consumers. They had no reason to. So it's up to NVIDIA if they launch a 3090 Super, although we know what that would be. I think a 3080 Super is likely. And when it comes to the 3070 Super or TI, actually from what I hear is that some of the wires may be crossed by some leakers and that NVIDIA may just do kind of like a 3070 TI with a 16 gigabyte offering and then launch a 3060 Super kind of below it with 12 gigabytes, and that a lot of this centers on how NVIDIA plans to segment it at the last minute. So it's not coming right now. I think it's probably coming late November, December, or most likely most of these will actually be coming out January, February. So they have about another month to decide how good they think ARC will be and when AMD will have a refresh on 6 nanometer. And so I think until they're like 100% sure, they're going to wait to decide how they segment everything. And a lot of the weirdness we're seeing here, like really in 16 gigabyte 3070 Ti, but then the 3070 Super is just eight gigabytes. And it's like, keep in mind that a lot of these will just obsolete the previous models. That like if they launch a 3060 Super, I think they're just going to discontinue the 3060 Ti effectively. Yeah, because the 3060, the 3060 Super is... It's weird because it oddly seems more like a 3060 Ti Super, but I think they didn't want to call that because that is a that that is a long name. Um, and I, I think you have to look at all the other models that they very well might cancel production of one of the existing models and and replace with all of these new supers. So like. I think like the 3070 Ti would probably I mean, the 3070 Ti 16 gigabytes might get rid of the need for the 3080. I'm not sure where, where they would go with that, but I, I, I... Well, it would be there specifically to combat Intel Arc, which is likely to beat the 3070, I guess. It's their 16 gigabyte offering, but I don't know what they price it at then, like 680, 650? Yeah, there, there's a lot of weirdness to how you price all of this because there's so many things in the product. If you're looking at the full product stack of Ampere, there's so many things in it at this point where... If they don't want it to look weirder than it already is, they kind of have to cancel thing certain products. And, you know, maybe they cancel the 3080 and the 3070 Ti is slightly cheaper than what the 3780's MSRP ever was. But I, I don't think you can just release all of these and have an, an, that insanely confusing lineup, though. Right. And people need to remember that they kind of wish they never would have launched the 3060 Ti nor the 3060 that they really screwed up. For some reason, they were spooked by RDNA 2, and they were like, ah, we need to make the 3070 cheaper, 3060 Ti. Ah, we need to put more RAM on the 3060 because the 6700 is coming for $300. It isn't, apparently. You know, and they just kind of underestimated how bad shortages would get, which yeah. is odd because they 
could have seen them coming by the time Ampere was launching, I feel like, but I don't know. So I, I feel like a lot of this is also just refreshing prices. Like I think a 3060 Super will probably be like, God, I don't know, 400, like $380 and priced right next to a 30, a 6600 XT. And it's a way for them to move the 3060 up in MSRP to more realistic street prices. Same with a 3060 Super. They really wish it was more. I I, I don't know. I, we're just going to have to see here. I, and yields are improving as well. So like if they release a 3090 Super, it stands to reason that they probably have more perfect dies now than they had before. And they can just not have the 3080 exist anymore. They can just have a 3080 Super with more dies enabled and just not have a 3080 Ti. At least that's what it seems like they probably do. But all this is quite confusing. And it all, again, they can decide to do whatever they want with any of these cuts over the next month. And well, a lot of them will obsolete previous Gen 1. So I wouldn't double down on any exact configurations. Yeah. Except and, for 3090 Super, because we know what that is. And if they can, like you said, if they're getting better efficiencies on uh, their production, you know, there's an incentive for them to get rid of an older, cheaper model, replace it with a newer, slightly more expensive, slightly better model, because, you know, they're leaving money on the table to an extent <laughs> by yes. disabling. Uh, it's been a of, year. They better yield. Yeah. By, then they're leaving money on the table by disabling part of a die that would otherwise be fine them to use yeah so again i kind of doubt anything will come out after we've recorded this that changes what our opinions were especially because it's just i just wouldn't double down on any of these configurations but what i will say and i and it's funny i saw someone in the comments of a recent video just go does he gonna say anything about the 3090 super guys i talk when i can speak with authority now i can say that although technically they could decide not to release these that they're definitely planning to. And that if you think about it, it's obviously to combat Intel Arc, six nanometer RDNA2, and also to take advantage of what's coming out early next year as well. Alder Lake laptops, Rembrandt laptops to have new laptop cards to pair with the new processors that when OEMs refresh their lineups, because uh, guys, Ampere Mobile has been not very impressive. <laughs> yeah. And so they kind of need to. Yeah, Nvidia needs to, I think, get on top of their messaging a little better in general because they've kind. Ampere has been kind of all over the place in general. I stand by my opinion that I've always had that they shouldn't do a super series. That they should, in fact, actually do an RTX 4000 series with refreshed Ampere, even if the top one's barely stronger than a 3090. That they just should do a new gen so they can redo pricing and VRAM amounts. I feel like there's something at NVIDIA where they don't like doing that because, I mean, they've done it before, but they haven't done it since Fermi or did they do one after that? Uh, Kepler kind of did. Oh, yeah. Ke yeah. But that was a die they were only selling at first to professional and then in the Titan. And then they used that as the basis for the 780 and moved down the product stack. Yeah. So I guess they haven't done that since then, but... These series names are all branding terms, and I feel like it gets once you have a series that's like up to how many cards are they up to at this point? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Okay. If all of this comes true, and then that's just for desktop. We're not even talking about 3050, 3050 yeah. Ti, you know. So once you're at a product stack of 12 products, it begins to get a bit much. And I I think keeping it below 10 is good. And I 
keeping it to between like six and eight is probably the best. I would agree. And I would also want to point out um, that I think people are sleeping on how perfectly segmented RDNA 2 is. I mean, if I divide 335 by 528, which I think, yeah, if you look at the difference in die sizes between Navi 23 to Navi 22 to Navi 21, and I presumably Navi 24, all of their die size differences is they have a die two thirds as big, roughly, of the one above it. Hmm. And they cut down the top cards by about 25% or so. So they basically have the bottom cut cards, 60 compute units, for example, of the RX 6800, just 10%, 20% better of what the top dive, what the next model would be. And then everything's perfectly segmented for the resolution. It's the opposite. I've never seen a better segmented lineup going against a lineup that just kind of seems like Jensen fired a shotgun at the wall. Yeah, and how many are there in the AMD stack? There's, so what, there's like, there's, what, seven right now? Yeah, and one of them, a couple of them are kind of just OEM only. Yeah, so I, I think that's a good good number just from a branding perspective to try to stay around. I do too. And now let us move on though to story number three. Steam Deck with Van Gogh graphics benchmarked. The Steam Deck benchmarks have emerged, and honestly, it's kind of what we expected. It performs around last-gen base consoles. To be clear, this is just the 15-watt version of Van Gogh being benchmarked in the Steam Deck, so this isn't benchmarking the full potential of, like, if Van Gogh was put on desktop for AM5 low-end, like I think they might. This isn't the 100-watt version that would assumably crush last, like, at least beat last-gen consoles by an okay amount, but it was a benchmark nonetheless, and what we have here here is, here's some examples. Shadow of the Tomb Raider on high at 30 frames a second. Shadow of the Tomb Raider at custom settings hitting 60. Doom Eternal, 46 frames per second on average with custom settings. Doom Eternal on low settings at 60 frames. Dota 2, 47 on high. Dota 2 on, on low settings, 80 frames per second. And Cyberpunk on high settings, 20 to 30 frames per second. And all of this was done, as far as we can tell, at the native resolution of the Steam Deck, 1280 by 800, which is slightly higher, I believe literally like 10% higher resolution than 720p. So yeah, when I look at like Doom Eternal, low 60 frames, I'm pretty sure that's basically what the PS4 version is. Mm. So if not a little lower actually than the PS4 base version. I mean, yeah. What, What do you think of these results, Dan? I wish there was one more, more recent game that isn't Cyberpunk 2077. Uh, in, in this too, like Battlefield Five or something. Yeah, or something within like the last year to benchmark, uh, because I would like to see how it does with more modern or more recent games. But you know, the performance is, like you said, expected. I wasn't expecting this to like crush performance, but I think it's acceptable enough. Um, once again, I would like to see one more. Uh, game released in the last like year to see if cyberpunk just performs poorly because it's cyberpunk or if like 20 to 30 frames per second on more modern on newer games is what you should expect and you know it's on high so if you lower that to like medium or something you might be able to push it to like i don't know 40 but yeah i I think it's good enough and yeah i I don't think i would have expected more than this no but again i I just got to point out, this is not an enthusiast gaming device. I just, I've seen people like some videos with yeah. like price performance king. 
next with a question mark next to the Steam Deck, and I'm like, fucking no. That's that's such a weird. That that's such a weird uh like thesis to have for an argument because like the point of the Steam Deck isn't to be best price performance. It's supposed to be portable. It's five hundred dollars for eight compute units. And like even looking at the WCCF Tech article that reported it that I put here in the description, like it says their title. I just feel like everyone's just he says it, the title says thirty FPS in Cyberpunk at native res. You mean seven twenty p? usually around 20. Like, what is this need to make it sound more impressive than it is? I'm not shitting on the Steam Deck here. I just don't like this weird way people are covering this as if it's some enthusiast gaming device. It's not. It's a portable PC gaming device that has the minimum performance to literally run the games in a playable setting. But it is certainly not running them. Half of them can't even, like, aren't even going to hit 60. It would be cool to see a device that does that, but I, I mean, this is already going to have, I think, probably not great battery life as it is. So, yeah, like two hours probably if you're playing Cyberpunk. Yeah, so it would be cool if they, if you know, something with like twenty compute units or were on this, but that's not what's available to them, and I, I don't get representing it as like some crusher of performance because it's not. It's like you said. It's the minimum level of power you need to have games perform at a semi-acceptable level. Again, if you look at the specs, it's about a, a third the performance of an Xbox Series S. Yeah. So if the Xbox Series S runs Valhalla at 720p60, okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I'm saying, guys. Glassbulb writes him, how will AMD's product stack look in quarter one of 2022? There are now rumors of there being both a Zen 3 XT, a Zen 3D, and other APUs before the Zen 4 AM5. Intel stack looks simpler and more streamlined, although expensive. What is AMD's game plan? Is the Zen XT, uh, Zen 3 XT going to be similar to what we saw with the 3800 XT? Well, so let me just stop here. I don't think this is really a surprise of anything. I don't think anyone expected the refresh of Zen 3 to have literally everything use Vcash. So that's all that would mean if you say Zen 3 XT and Zen 3D. And the Zen 3D chips would, would assumedly have higher clocks than the Zen 3 chips that are going to be over a year old by the time mm -hmm. this comes out. So I'm not sure of exact segmentation, but I would assume AMD is not going to hold back. I don't think, you know, I would think that next year they're going to try to make sure they have some, yeah, like maybe some paper launch in December and get something out as soon as possible where you have like a 5950 X3D and then a 5900 X3D and then a 5800 X3D, I would assume. And then I would just assume there's a, you know, like a, a 5600 XT. Or something. Now, do they just go to the 6000 series? I'm not sure. But I, I would expect a lot of the low end to not have Vcash. Yeah, I mean, I, I think from a marketing perspective, it's probably going to have a similar look to um, Matisse, too. It, from a branding perspective, sure, you're going to have the top end uh, have uh, 3D cash. But I think they, I don't even know if they'll market it as 3D. Maybe they'll call it the 5950 3D or whatever, but they don't have to. They could even call it, yeah, just the 5950 XT, the yeah. 5900 XT, and then they could even introduce products like a 5950 non-X, and they could introduce products like a 5700X, you know? That's totally what they might end up doing, and 
I guess. Yeah, I don't I don't have anything else to add outside of that, though, is question, you know, what's this other thing before Zen 4? It's Rembrandt, you know, and there's I've heard that they may launch AM5 with uh, Rembrandt Zen 3 plus before Zen 4 comes out. And yeah, that'd be pretty cool. Yeah. (laughs) And I could see them doing that and then also dropping Van Gogh, which has a DDR5 controller on there. Or does it have a DDR5 or is it just LP DDR5? I think it might be just LP DDR5, so I don't know. It might just be Rembrandt then. But uh, let us move on to another reader mail. GPU on writes and it says, how far can we, ex- how far away can we expect to see CPU-GPU combinations in a single die rather than having to install a CPU and GPU? Separately, I'm talking about graphical power and chips that won't require installing discrete, discrete graphics at all. Well, we're already seeing it in the consoles, my friend. Is one would think that the consoles have implemented this kind of technology. Again, it's just a bigger APU. It's mm-hmm. like this tech's been around since PS4, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so again, you know, when can we expect to see it? What's your level of performance? I mean, Steam Deck will be as strong as some consoles. Rembrandt will probably get to hmm. Yeah, I don't think PS4 Pro levels of performance, but certainly stronger than last-gen consoles base. Uh, they can do it whenever they want. It's just up to AMD. Well, well for one, uh, would they have to release a new socket for that, possibly, or could they package that on an AM5? Because I think... They could. Okay. They just need to have, make sure they have, like, you know, like a dual-channel DDR5 controller. And the only other thing I would think about it is if, to some extent, like this high-power... Um, these high power APUs might almost be antithetical to some of the DIY space where people like mixing and matching parts. And I think there's going to be maybe some resistance to it immediately because you can't mix and match like your CPU and GPU, or they would need to have a bunch of different SKUs so you could get like an eight core with 32 CUs or an eight core with 64 CUs or whatever. But you know, I think it's going to come eventually. It's just a matter of when they think it's economical for them to release that along with or instead of GPUs. I, I think when you look at where they're pricing Saison on desktop, that's where they want to get it to. And the only mm-hmm. reason Saison can be priced so high is they have like zero APU on desktop competition right now. Like, But I think they want to get, as I've said, I think their ultimate goal is to get the 66 to get the 600 XT class, so 76, 8600 XT. I think their goal is to get the 8600 XT to about $500 and the 8500 XT to about 400 and then have an APU yeah. that's stronger than consoles out for 350. I think that's the goal. Um and and but they need to be able to mark up everything so the segmentation makes sense before they do that. Yeah, that makes sense. Hollow Knight writes in, for cheaper GPUs, will we use GDR5 or GDR5X? Will this be more economically viable when we need more VRAM? I know it's dumb, but it's a random thought I have. No, I think DDR5. I mean, DDR5 has bandwidth that is around GDR5, and I think, honestly, I think it'll be either DDR5 or there just won't be low enough, low-end enough GPUs to not just use GDR6 or GDR7. And uh, GDR5 is getting problematic to acquire, isn't it? Or no? Yes. I mean, I've heard of stories where there are outfits now in China that are buying up and just trying to get graphics cards for 10 bucks. Because we've been using GDR5 for, I mean, what, since the 4000 series, I think? The HD 4000 series? So, from AMD. So, if we've been using GDR5 since then, 
then conceivably you could get those cards just out of recycling bins for like five bucks and then they could take the RAM off of it and put it in new 1650s. That's what I've heard people are doing. Yeah, which I don't There's a bit that. of a scandal going on <laughs> behind the scenes over it. I know, but that's what I've heard. Probably not that card because its RAM is clocked too low, but that's what I've heard's going on with some products right now that they're actually using recycled RAM. And it's from a source I trust, so... I don't know. I guess it'd be better used to make a new 1660 than to that have that do nothing. just sitting there. <laughs> yeah. Want to get sent some nudes? I am proud to say that Vite Ramen is a sponsor of Moore's Laws Dead. The Vite Ramen Company is an American company that pays its workers fair wages and engineered a tasty, healthy, and cheap meal that you can cook in less than five minutes. So if you're busy, hungry, or just looking for a pre-made meal that isn't expensive, get some nudes sent to you. Click the link in the description and use the code BROKENSILICON to save 10% on your order. This helps me, this saves you money, and this supports a good company. Buy Vite Ramen today. Let us now move on then to story number four, Intel Arc pictures and release date leaked. All right, on October 1st, Moore's Law Dead leaked pictures of Arc and not just the engineering sample, what is the final or near final design of desktop cars to be sold to consumers by quarter two of 2022? In short, what Moore's Law is dead will be calling the A512 from now on because we know, it seems, right? We talked about this last broken silicon with you that clearly it goes, what? Alchemist, Battle Mage, Celestial, Druid, A, B, C, D. So it's clear. And then we also have a leak showing the name is a lowercase letter in the beginning and then three numbers. It might be like A700 for the top card, but I'm just going to call it A512 from now on because it's Roger Cador and he said Vega 64. I think it's easy to tell what I'm talking about. Um, and it's quicker to say than 512 execution model version. I'll just say A512. But anyways, what Moore's Law is that it will be calling the A512 until further notice seems to be a fairly typically cool dual fan card with semi-premium finishes and a vapor chamber. However, it doesn't seem so expensive that Intel can't indeed keep this a $400 product should they want to. It doesn't look as flashy as Ampere, in other words. Is the same cooler the A384 or A448 is expected to use, and a smaller cooler is likely to be leaked of A128 as well. Oh, and right now, Moore's Law can confirm Laptop Arc launches quarter one and desktop is attention, and the desktop arc will attempt to launch around then as well, but may slip to quarter two. XE is real, people, and we have pictures of it. Excited in it for a resurgent Intel yet? Because Tom is. And I'll also add in another source added in again that my performance estimates seem to be pretty dead on, that they should be able to beat the 3070, that they should then beat the 3060 with the cut down model, and that they should have something, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, around a 30, a 1650 Super or a 6500 XT in performance. That's the three segments Intel's targeting on desktop first. So what do you think, Dan? We have pictures and more confirmation of when it's coming out and uh, performance. I'm not going to speak on performance because I think we've talked about the Intel Arc's performance enough. I, I, yeah. I, I think we keep centering in more and more on it's probably around a three, uh, 3070, which I don't know, depending uh, 3070 to 3070Ti, which is the bottom of high end or top of mid range right now. And I don't, I think the graphics card looks very nice. Uh, it doesn't look like it's 
reinventing the wheel like Ampere is. So. No. <laughs> so that would suggest that they're not spending what I don't remember what you said, but some insane amount of money that whatever NVIDIA was paying for their uh, reference coolers. So, you know, I think that speaks to it could be uh, targeting uh, competitive or aggressive pricing, but, you know, still looking premium because I think I think uh, in this market, graphics card just need to look premium. They can't look like the, uh, I don't know, kind of cheap toys that a lot of graphics cards looked like in the in like <laughs> yeah. 2010 where they like didn't have a back plate and <laughs> were made of like really flimsy plastic. I just think that era is kind of dead. Yeah. I think if prices are going to stay where they are around now, which I think they will, you're going to, the one benefit is the coolers will be nicer. You, you just can't get away with cheap coolers anymore. Though I have seen people try to, to be clear. <laughs> yeah. Like there was, I forgot which one hardware and box reviewed of the 6600 XT recently. That was just so bad. <laughs> I don't, it was so cheap looking. Uh, it was bad. But I think that's going to be rare now. And I guess the only other thing I'll say is just point out how much work went into this. And actually works as being put now into a 3060 Super concept render, mm -hmm. by the way, Dan. And also 128 or A128 render for ARC and also maybe a 3050 Ti concept render. So I'm starting to work with a renderer and there was a lot of work talking to sources, making sure we got everything right as we rendered it. And I won't give details, but I'm told that it was very good. We did a render of this card instead of trying to sneak pictures out of Intel again, that they probably would have been caught. Mm -hmm. So this is a method that I think we've stumbled into of us leaking how things look way before we should be able to. And I, uh, yeah, thanks for supporting us on Patreon. We want to make this standard because I think this was... This is a fun thing I haven't really seen anyone else do. Everyone just seems to render things then they're already out. But this is us actually trying to get you information sooner. And I don't know. I think uh, it was very exciting. I think I, I'll just say to finally see what it looked like. Don't you think? Yeah. And all of this is again going. Yeah, this thing's definitely coming out, guys. You got <laughs> anyone doubting ARC at this point? It's coming. It's going to compete with the 3070, guys. Intel is a big company. They're big boys. They can make things. I mean, at this point, if you're... Still denying Arc is come is around the corner. I feel like you're just really sticking to your guns too much. Indubitably. Timo writes him, now is DG2 is delayed a quarter two. Well, it's not official yet, although I will say I saw Hassan at WCCF Tech say he's confirming my quarter two release date. So mm -hmm. maybe it is for sure quarter two. He says, is your holiday season saved? <laughs> well, because you don't have to cover as many leaks then. Honestly, if I had something big, I'd manage to get it out in the holidays if I could, but I would mostly be taking it off anyways. Like it, we take off the last two weeks of the year and we're going to no matter what. Yeah. Like we, we just need it. Like I'm already starting to feel it that I need it. Deco writes in, in your latest video, you said that getting pictures from NVIDIA, Intel, and AMD is becoming harder and harder compared to before. Can you give us any examples of how they are making it harder to show pictures compared to previous years? No. Because <laughs> that might give away sources. What I can say is that AMD is becoming incredibly locked down and that Intel is showing more signs. They're not going to let this keep going on for much longer. Yeah. All right. So let us move on here. You know what? I think what I'm going to do is skip most of these reader mails and put them into the mailbag or the next broken silicon, Dan, because we're already going a little long when we combine the guest. We just ask one reader mail and then get into the final uh, the final one here. So 
Sal Amanders writes in and he says, hello, Tom and guest. You have said that RDNA 3 and 4 are going to provide great performance uplifts over their previous generations, and Lovelace is rumored to still be competitive. But what do you expect from the successor to Lovelace? Or is there not information to go off yet? Thank you, and I love your content. Becoming a patron was an easy decision to make. Well, thank you for supporting us. And what I would say is, I've got some RDNA 4 early info, which I'm basically saying it's another at least 50% boost over RDNA 3. I would assume whatever NVIDIA is doing is going to be around there as well. Or I just don't see if NVIDIA, especially if they lose with Lovelace, they don't come out with something killer after that. That They're definitely, we know they're working on MCM designs. And if AMD gets it one generation out sooner than NVIDIA, then they'll just have it on the next one. In other words, I think we're going to roughly double performance next year and at the very end of next year. Uh, and then I think in 2025, we'll have something out double the strong as that. So yeah, <laughs> or, or a little sooner. Cause I hear RDNA four should follow up to RDNA three, a little quicker than three did to two. And, uh, I don't think I need to give you a code name. Although again, apparently the code names for all upcoming NVIDIA architectures are out there from some slide from three years ago. If you look it up guys. Oh um, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> so it's one of those code names. I don't remember what they were. All right, that is all of the main stories. I just want to say a word very quickly here uh, about this final one. So Silicon Lottery announces it is closing its binning service. And I just want to read the statement in full from SiliconLottery.com. We're shutting down not for just one reason, but for a combination of many. As you may be aware, overclocking headroom has been dwindling these past several years with manufacturers offering higher frequencies at stock better boosting algorithms, and tighter bins between models, which reduces overclock frequency variation. The 11900K is essentially a binned 11700K. So with the 11900K, we're basically binning what has already been fairly heavily been product. This type of product segmentation is nothing new, but having such minor differences between two models is a more recent shift. Intel has also switched from polymer TIM back to a soldered TIM, starting with their ninth generation CPU, which has reduced the thermal benefits achieved from delitting, a bigger service of ours as well. In addition, supply issues have taken a major toll on us. Even before the pandemic started, our orders with distributors for the last few releases have been nightmares of delays upon delays. With all this in mind, sales have fallen below the point where it makes sense for us to keep the store open. We know many of you are eagerly wanting Alder Lake CPUs, and we're sorry that we won't be able to fulfill your needs this time. We have seen your emails rolling in these past couple of weeks, and we're sorry for not getting back to you guys earlier as we've been busy juggling this decision. While we will be closed for the foreseeable future, it's not necessarily goodbye forever. If things change in the market, particularly if overclocking headroom and variation increase for whatever reason, it's possible we'll roll things out really quickly again. Wish all of you the best and keep having fun tweaking hardware. So I don't know. Do you remember this website, Dan? Um, I think I do. I mean, I've never, you know, I, I've never used the binning or deleting service, but yeah, I, I, I remember it. Yeah. And I guess, I don't know how much I have to say about this, right? This isn't, it's not like I paid much attention to how they were doing. Yeah, You know, because I never was using it. But what I will say is once you hear them say all of this, it's like, yeah, it's almost surprising they lasted as long as they did. Yeah, I, I know. And it's a little unfortunate because, it, it, you know, it kind of feels like the <laughs> the end of an era of uh, like extreme overclocking that people used to do. And it's kind of just fallen by the wayside because 
as you know, their statement reads there, the companies are like more specifically binning all of their products now to that. And it kind of eliminates the need for overclocking in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I guess what thing that I will miss though, is just the fact that they offered statistics on what the overclocking headroom on average was for each chip, mm-hmm. like which tiers of binnings they had. And a big discovery I remember around Zen 2's launch was there's basically no tiers. <laughs> <laughs> that Zen 2 is very tight, that the difference between the worst bin was like all core boosting to 4.05 gigahertz and all core boosting to 4.2. Oh yeah, that's, that's, there's some variation there, but if we're going back to the old days of like, Ivy Bridge or whatever you could, especially Haswell. To my memory, had yeah. wild variations. Yeah, you could, you you could get some insane overclocks on some CPUs back then. Yeah, so I don't know. I mean, it's unfortunate that's closing, but you know, as luck would have it. He immediately accepted the request to be a guest. It was a shorter conversation, but I thought anyone who enjoys most of our episodes will really enjoy this one. So thank you for listening to this uh, first, you know, kind of half or 40% of the Broken Silicon episode. We also now have a conversation with the founder of Silicon Lottery. I am really excited that I was able to get this guest on so fortuitously at such short notice in around when all of their, uh, when I would say there was still some buzz going on with the website this person started. So I'll, I'll let you introduce yourself then. Yeah. Hey, uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, my name is Preston Hickson. I'm the founder and owner of Silicon Lottery. I spent most of my life in the Kansas City area. I moved down to Houston though when I started the company. I'm still fairly young at 29. So my background is pretty simple up to this point. I'm a high school graduate and directly before Silicon Lottery, I was working for Comcast as a contractor. Well, so that gets us right into it then. I mean, I assume, where do I start? I I assume you've just been into overclocking for a long time, right? Yeah, (laughs) I I loved overclocking. And I assume you've always been a gamer, right? So like, when did you get into were you always PC first? Did you like start with the Nintendo 64 or something? Like when did you, when did you start gaming and when did you start overclocking? As a kid, I had Game Boy, all the Nintendo stuff, Nintendo 64, GameCube, Wii's. Uh, that was like my big gaming start was Nintendo stuff. I moved into PC stuff like after high school. And I remember, I think it was, Portal 2 was like the first PC game I got to play. Mm-hmm. And that that just blew my mind moving around with the mouse. <laughs> oh, yeah. That game's like, I, I, I wouldn't know how hard it is on console. I've played it on PC. I think the game is significantly harder to quickly do those like ninja shots and jump around on a uh, controller. Yeah. I started overclocking in 2011 because that's when mm-hmm. I built my first computer with the now infamous i5 2500K. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew and I knew going in beforehand that I was going to overclock it. I spent a lot of time researching overclock guides, and the whole point of me buying it was to overclock it. Like it just drew me in. 
I, I imagine them, right? I was into PC gaming before then, but I'd say when I when I really got into that like crazy enthusiast realm of like reading everything on Anantech, everything on Tom's hardware, you know, overclocking in the middle of the night for fun. It was right around there as well. I, I got a an Ivy Bridge desktop. And so I, I'd say in terms of like full enthusiasm, like we're from a similar we're from a similar era. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's like, there's like, you know, probably the 2000s era of people. And then I feel like there's this early PC gaming renaissance group. And then there's like the second gen, I would call it, of the gaming renaissance people who probably got in around Pascal and Polaris. So, so you remember all of the early GCN days, Fermi, yeah. all of those things. Yeah. I, a really fun time with all of it. I mean, I got really lucky with that first processor I had. It was a good sample. I was able to get up to two. Uh, up to 5.2 gigahertz prime 95 and i was just like it was the funnest thing uh speaking of like nintendo stuff like one of the things i directly saw benefits from overclocking was emulating at the time right so emulating those games you could see that fps could go up to almost the native uh frame rate of the gamecube and yeah it's just always something that i'm just drawn to it (laughs) yeah i mean well Back then, it it honestly just made sense. And I know there's people from like PC gaming in the 90s on desktop and early 2000s who will go, well, if you thought, you know, well, I mean, a Sandy Bridge, I mean, it had turbo boost, but I, I think it the default was like around four gigahertz for boost, if I remember correctly. On the 2500K, uh, it was a 3.4 all core turbo. Right. Which so is, that was all core. I don't remember. Was there even separate for single core? I don't yeah, even remember. It was 3.7 single, 3.4 all core. So you could say if you got to 5.2 gigahertz all core, I mean, yeah, I mean, you're looking at a 30% or more yeah. overclock, which was pretty typical of products at the time. Not all products would do that. You wouldn't expect to buy something and get it 30% better. I mean, once something is 30% better or more, you're looking at basically, you just got a different tier of product. But my 7970 did 35% overclocks. I had multiple Kepler um and hd 6000 cards that would do 20 percent plus i i mean would you agree back then it seemed like it just i don't know if it was expected but it wasn't it was completely believable that most of the graphics card and cpu products you would buy would get you in at least a 20 percent boost unless it was the already pre-been top end right definitely yeah and so that's why it was so crazy if there was a high-end product that overclocked well as well which a lot some of them did though at the time i mean so you got into gaming or pc gaming heavily around that you know sandy bridge going into gcn era like where did it go from there did did you do all the like it sounds similar right you did a lot of research for your desktop and then you just kept reading the articles from all those websites after you built it right yeah and posting on forums and getting help, tweet, you know, going through every line of setting on the motherboard, trying to understand, figure out what every little thing does. Because there's a lot in there that you don't need to touch, but I wanted to touch all of it to see what everything would do. Yeah, and, it, and it, it, there's something very rewarding about it as well, isn't there? Where it's like, frankly, it's just something you can do no matter how tired or burnt out from the day you are. You can just it's kind almost, of guess and check, right? It's fun. I don't, it's just relaxing. It's almost like a game itself. You're, you're mm-hmm. it's a puzzle game, and you get to see instant results. Try your new frequency, new voltage, boot into Windows to a test. It fails. Go back. I don't know. So, did you just stick with this desktop then, or did you start 
finding excuses to build them for yourself <laughs> and for other people? Like how did that transition into building more and more systems? So I, I stuck with that system for three years uh, until mm-hmm. I, the, the, I wanted to buy Ivy Bridge, buy Haswell, but it's just financial reasons. It didn't make sense for me to, at that time, to spend a lot on computer hardware. But um, in 2014, built my second computer with Haswell e-launch. I got everything full maxed out. Five nine, uh, five nine sixty X, not the mm-hmm. not the fifty nine fifty X from AMD now. <laughs> right, fifty nine sixty X, the eight core Haswell e part. Um, I mean that thing still probably games quite well to this day. I'm sure. Yeah, uh, that's when I built that computer, that's when this whole idea of Silicon Lottery started because unlike my 2,500K, which was a very good Mm -hmm. sample, the 5960X I bought was not, (laughs) I, if I remember correctly, I I was not able to run even benchmarks past the 4.4 gigahertz mark. And Mm -hmm. I was going through the forums and seeing people do 4.6, 4.7, 4.8. So frustrated. I think I was doing something wrong. You know, at that time I, I was like, well, I put a thousand dollars in this thing and I'm trying to get like the most I I want what they have. So I started searching, you know, is there any way I can pay money, pay some premium to Mm. get a CPU that is known good? And I could not find anything out there. So I'm like, well, I want this. I'm, I'm thinking probably other people might be interested in this too. So from there... Yeah, and I mean, just to kind of commiserate with you on that, I had an Ivy Bridge i5. I, I'm trying, you know, it had higher IPC, it used less energy, it had a better, better I/O, PCIe 3.0. I mean, there was a reason to get Ivy Bridge over a Sandy Bridge if they were the same price. But often the Sandy Bridge was cheaper. I managed to get one for like a month after it came out from some scientific website that was like getting rid of them already. It was it was a weird deal that I found, um, but. It only went to, I think, all core about 4.5, 4.6 gigahertz. And I heard Haswell. My memory is that Haswell, the best golden samples actually hit higher clocks than Ivy Bridge, but a higher proportion of the Haswell samples were very bad overclockers. Is that something that you remember as well about the difference between like Ivy Bridge and Haswell overclocking? Yeah, that sounds about spot on. Um, Haswell excluding Devil's Canyon. Um, mm-hmm. Well, that was like a year later. They just right. bend it higher. Yeah, Right. I, I think, you know, I don't have... My experience starts with the 4790K Devil's Canyon. That's where Silicon Lottery starts. So before mm-hmm. that, I'm just going off what I remember seeing on forums. And it seemed to be about the same level of overclock between Ivy Bridge and Haswell. You yeah, roughly hit, you, speaking, you can hit 4.5 gigahertz, but right. honestly, half of the samples can't even hit that. Yeah. All right. So it sounds like you thought of it when you had a Haswell e-chip and then where did it, did it, you just do it like right away? You just jumped in. You were just, Hey, I think this is a job that anyone that I can do for sure. And I bet there's people who want this. Let me just get a website now and <laughs> you know, out of a room, just start binning uh, a handful of chips and see if anyone buys them? Yeah, uh, once I, I had the idea in my mind, I, I started you know, putting things out on paper, trying to figure out what I wanted to do, how I was going to get it to work. Um, I had my plan set out pretty big and took a big leap, took all of my savings and mm-hmm. purchased 
as many 4790K CPUs as I could and spent about a month with all of those CPUs I bought trying to figure out exactly like, how am I doing this? What am I going to do? I, I, you know, I, I could, you know, just playing, spending like five minutes with each one, you can kind of immediately get a feel for yes. which ones are good, which are bad. Um, but I can't sell a feel. I need to figure out exactly what I'm doing. And from the start, I, I did just an hour of real branch, real bench stress testing. And I did the frequency and voltage. In hindsight, that was not the best way to go about it. I was specifically testing the minimum voltage for each frequency that a CPU could do. Mm -hmm. And spending spending that much time on each CPU, once this starts scaling up, it becomes really infeasible. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me let me throw in a couple of reader mails here then. Um Drew Gillies writes in and he says, how did he source his CPUs? Did he just buy a bunch from the manufacturer, validate the good ones and return the bad? Or do you buy from individuals who claim to have good overclocking CPUs? So there's that question. And then Alex also asked, how did you know a chip was hitting its limit? Is it just a matter of watching voltage and temps? And I kind of want to take these questions and actually ask both of them like early and later, right? Early on, like, did you just buy the chips from Amazon. And then, like you said, you just did an early bench on a few and then, then you, all oh, these ones are good. So let me double check them or, or exactly, exactly. How did you get them and test them in the beginning? And exactly what was it at the end? Like, I'm sure you had a, a regimented, you know, methodical system uh, a couple years after that. Yeah. At the beginning it was, uh, I think I purchased all the 4790Ks from Newegg. Uh, I think okay. Amazon at the time wasn't selling them for whatever reason. I don't remember mm -hmm. exactly when, I, but there was a period of time Amazon didn't sell until processors. Not a lot of them. I would say the way I would put it is I remember Amazon always selling these processors. They just wasn't consistent. Like when a new one came out, it might be months before right, Amazon. Right, 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 right. Now I place orders with the main distributors, think like Ingram Micro or whatever. Once, mm -hmm. once new. Uh, a new model comes out, I'll place the order. But there's a lot of friction there just getting, because at launch, launch date for, let's say, let's say Haswell launches. Within, yeah. within two weeks, that's when everyone wants it. They want it now. <laughs> they don't want to wait a month. Well, especially the people that want the best right. yields. These are enthusiasts. Right. So they want it at launch or they're only willing to wait a couple of weeks. And so... Yeah, me being a, a fairly small player, I don't get any of that launch priority access that the bigger retailers, Amazon, Newegg, will get. I sit and kind of wait my turn. And so I'll place my order at the distributors and then I'll buy processors everywhere I can see. I'll buy them from Amazon, Newegg, any business that will do stuff with me. I've worked out some deals with some other people in the past that have let me get a good number of them in so I can start testing, validating, and have a good amount to do at launch. Because when I turn the screen on, put all the inventory up on launch dates, most of the time, it's like five seconds, boom, I've sold <laughs> everything. Mm -hmm. As far as knowing when the CPUs are hitting overclock limits. There's a couple of ways to answer it. The basic answer is you'll raise your voltage up until you get to a temperature yeah. that's uncomfortable, then raise your frequency up until it crashes. You know, that's a very basic way of doing the overclocking. Um, Can I ask you this too? Because 
I mean, at stock, especially back then, Intel processors, especially Ivy Bridge through Skylake, once they would just hit 100C, you know, <laughs> at stock because they had pretty terrible thermal Tim, and they were built to do that, though. To be fair, some people are like, it's hitting 100C, it's going to break. It's like, no, they've got another 20 Celsius before it yeah. melts the silicon or does real damage. Like Intel built these to hit 100C and then bump down clocks. That's just how they're built. But, you know, I found that like with my 7970, I had some overclocks that only worked if I kept it below 80 degrees Celsius, right? Mm-hmm. If it went above 80, that overclock was not stable. It would, it would literally... Like like snapping my finger freeze the second it hit 82. Like it was hilarious. So I, I imagine though you would bend them and you'd find a certain stability. Would you also have to give guidelines for temperature or was this just very conservative on what it can hit at a certain voltage with like the golden samples or something? Well, we had a qualified vendors list, QVL, and it said, mm-hmm. you know, what coolers we can you can expect to use and have stability. That's as far as the temperature goes there. Um, in the example you just pointed out where you're talking about, let's say you're running overclock 4.5 gigahertz. If it's running at 80 degrees, it seems to run perfectly stable, no issues. The temperature gets mm-hmm. up to 83 crashes. Well, running that same CPU instead of at 4.5, running at a 4.4, you'll find it'll run 4.4, 85, 90, 95 degrees. It's only, mm-hmm. you were just at the very, you, you found exactly yes, where. I did. <laughs> that's how, that's how closely I tweaked that 7970 I had for like four or five years. Yeah. I was like, I knew on the dot exactly where to put it for certain games. And like, I was, I, I some would argue I wasted a lot of time to be honest, but I found it fun. So, you know, we're not, we, it's too, way too time consuming to try to find that exact line so we can't go in trying to do that for each CPU. We have to create categories and do mm-hmm. test fail. And within those categories, you know, that's, as far as temperature goes, I'm, we typically aim for like encoding workloads to be at around 80 degrees. It's kind of the rule of thumb that we stuck to. Mm-hmm. So you started, you know, just selling from <laughs> taking them from New Way. Oh, yeah, this is a question I definitely have. How much more did you, if you don't mind me asking, did you charge for the Devil's Canyon bend chips? And what was the clock you got them bent to for the top model? Because if I was starting this business and no one else had a business like this, I would be very unsure of what to charge for the bend chips. (laughs) Like, what did you charge for the top? So the top Devil's Canyon that you were selling, what, or or did you say you actually started with the 4770K? No, the 4790K. Okay, so you did start with Devil's Canyon. What was the top all-core turbo that was the highest people could buy, and what did you charge for it? Uh, The highest bin we had was a 5 gigahertz bin, and Mm -hmm. I'm trying to remember. um, That was a big part of the learning prices. Uh, During all of Devil's Canyon, my prices on the website would change every couple weeks. I I would basically, I, I, I put it where I thought it should be, and then, right. and then just on sales data coming in, if, if one category was selling too fast, raise the price. One selling really slow, lower. And I just kind of found the sweet spot where supply and demand kind of fit in. And, and then you had a better idea of where to price a new right. generation when it came out, right? right? Yeah. Because I, I, if I was you, I'm just being honest, we're, we're actually very, I think we're almost the same age. 
Um, I was thinking of starting like a desktop building service as well. And I was like, I don't know, maybe I charge 10% more. I don't know what to charge, right? But I've seen your website and some of those were selling for double or 50% more markup. Some people were willing to pay way more than what I would have just guessed to put it at, right? Yep. And and that's typically what I think if I'm I'm trying to remember, I think like for the top 4790K, right when I started the site, I think I was only charging a like 100, $150 premium. And that was Mm -hmm. a bad call on my end because people were willing to pay much, much more than that. And so not only do I end up making less money, I also end up with 100 emails coming in, people asking for this thing. And I'm like, well, I I can't magically make these appear. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and that's perfect for the next reader mail here. QH Freddy writes in and he says, what would you say are the main challenges in dealing with selling bin parts with an overclocked speed out of the box? Is it often that people come back and say a chip wasn't clocked as advertised or some other issue that pops up a lot? Any specific stories that stand out? So kind of like I was mentioning, we used an, just an hour of stress test uh, originally mm-hmm. uh, back in like 2017, we switched over to doing testing first, like strict stability, just flat out all workloads. Um, when we switched over to doing that, I I almost got no emails at all about stability issues. When I was trying to sell specific voltage and frequency, you know, just a change of five degrees in the room temperature can cause that result to be different. And that's right. where I get people saying, well, you said 1.34 volts, but I need 1.35 volts. And like, <laughs> okay. So after we started, we refined our process basically, and we got this down testing for stability. No real issues. People coming back and saying not clocking is advertised. We also left a little bit of headroom on each one of those to to help reduce those types of problems from happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, that was mostly what you would get then, is people just you know, oh, I needed to. Would they would they usually send it back or would they keep it? Would they just say, hey, I'm mad though, I had to add this much voltage. Those people early on, uh, I think I just I gave out like partial refunds and stuff. Just I, I was trying to just figure it all out. It was, it was just a big learning process. Yeah. Well, and it's funny you mentioned like, oh, what room is it in? Because no matter how stable a system is, this isn't that true for me anymore because I don't push my components nearly as hard as I used to when I got out of college. But back then, like, even if something was 24-7 stable from my testing, it would still maybe crash every now and then. But during the winter, it wouldn't. (laughs) Even Even though my temperature, you know, radouts, said the same temperature while gaming in the summer and in the winter. There's just got to be other things on that motherboard. It's probably yep. throttling slightly more often. If it's just a colder room, it's just more stable. Like it just is. Like there's nothing else you can do about it. Like even if it says it's running at the same temp, other the dis, you know, the dispersed heat throughout the whole system affects it as well. Yep. I mean, heck, some there are some houses I've been in that are more stable than others. Like their electrical <laughs> wire. I'm and yeah, yeah, I've yeah. asked that is a factor too. It is. Like, is how good is the wiring in your house? How stable is the voltage? Because there are some houses, my parents, not anymore. They used to live in this one house that seemed nice, but it they cheaped out on the wire <laughs> there for sure. There's just no way around it. Um, Doomberry writes in, he says, Hello, I've never used this website before, so I want to ask some simple questions. 
What was it like during the peak of popularity at Silicon Lottery? How much value volume did you sell roughly every month? And what's your best or favorite product? Did it really make a big performance difference in your opinion? Right. So because you started with Haswell and then next up, um, did you do Broadwell at all on desktop? Yeah, did I you just skip that? Okay. So you did Broadwell briefly and then Skylake. Coffee Lake, when did it start to feel like a bigger thing? When did you start hiring people to help you or did you? So the peak is definitely with Coffee Lake, the 8700K and the 8086K. Um, mm. They were just flying off the shelves. I, I had an exponential increase in orders. It's, that's when I hired, uh, I hired my first employee shortly before that launch. I, I know I can gauge the demand based on people sending in email notifications. They want to know when the product's coming in. And for, mm. and for Coffee Lake, I, there was just tremendous amount of demand. Yeah, it, it got a little bit overwhelming there. I was working nonstop trying to keep up with everything. Um, we blew past the 1,000 mark uh, for as far as like Coffee Lake units sold. But on top of that, we also had thousands of delid orders coming in at the time, people right. mailing the processors in. Well, you know, people who build a high-end gaming PC, most of these people have a disposable income, probably a pretty large one. If they're not, you know, if they're not looking for like a back then, a Ryzen R5 1600 for 130 bucks or an i3 or a lower i5, you know, then they're probably loaded to a certain extent <laughs> and they want the best. And delitting, I mean, it offers a huge, you know, just a massive temperature reduction. And I know you guys offered some like, what, like golden plated IHS with like soldered on or um, liquid metaled on to the die that if you're an enthusiast gamer, hey, that's the nicest gaming CPU you can, you can get. And you know what? It's shinier. No, so we, it feels we, nicer, We right? never offered alternative IHS or anything. Oh, you didn't? No, okay. because I, I mean, I tested all types of things and there's never a, a performance difference. You're taking a piece of copper uh, of nickel-plated copper and replacing it with a solid piece of copper. I, I tested all, all different types of these things and like one degree difference, it, it's, it was nothing that I would, I wanted to sell because it was so pointless. Right. But you did do delitting services yes. and did you put a new thing on it or did you just sell it delitted? Maybe I remembered wrong then. Well, no, I mean, we would take the IHS off, clean the paste up, put the liquid metal on, seal the IHS back on. Okay. Would you, was it literally the biggest moment I should say the highest volume product was the 8700K or was it the 9900K and the 8700 was really the start of the huge volume? The 8700K was the largest volume. Hmm. Yeah, and I mean, that was like the last time Intel really had this giant performance lead in gaming over AMD, which I mean, compared to Piledriver, it wasn't as giant as... I mean, let's be honest, it, the Intel had like a 50% gaming lead yeah. for pile driver or something at one point, if not more. Um, but this was the last time where if you weren't going to, you know, go for multi-threaded with Ryzen or save some money on a lower end Ryzen that if you want the top model, I guess I could see why a lot of enthusiasts, enthusiasts also as well wanted to make sure it was the best overclockers. That was frankly the only reason you're getting <laughs> Intel anymore at that point if, is for enthusiast gaming and it's overclocked. Yep. For that single threaded performance. So I've been, I'm going to start transitioning here then. Derek Mitchell asks, 
or Derek Mitch asked, do you think that the overclocking headroom that was enabled with Silicon Laboratory was only available because Intel was so far ahead of AMD that they basically artificially crippled their processors for a while? Or was it simply technological limitations of the time? If it was market-based rather than technological, are we unlikely to see overclocking headroom unless one firm completely dominates the other again in the future? So, no, I wouldn't say Intel crippled their processors. They had power and voltage targets that they wanted to meet, and they brought their frequency up to that power target in the past. When you look at Sandy Bridge, for example, uh, even under their all-core turbo, they would still stay Mm -hmm. around that 95-watt base clock TDP when you're running at stock. Uh, Mm -hmm. Intel's processors today, of course, blow way past that base clock TDP when they're running turbo speeds. And you know, there, yes. there's a reason they stopped including stock coolers with those K-SKUs is because those coolers cannot handle the turbo speeds. And they don't want to include like a, you know, a 240 right. millimeter online liquid cooler, so, which is what it really probably needs. You know, they sold, like with Sandy Bridge, they sold unlocked processors. So you could overclock them, use whatever voltage you want, run whatever frequency you want. I would think if they were interested in artificially keeping performance at a low level, we wouldn't have been offered unlocked processors or there would be like limited multipliers or something we could use. So Mm -hmm. I don't think that they artificially crippled anything. You know, I, I agree as well. I think the best you could say in terms of if they were holding anything back was their priorities were just different. Look, yeah. They were focused on, look, they, they're dominating desktop performance at the, I'm going to be honest too, guys, like, what this the more I cover the gaming PC market and enthusiast culture around it, the more it's like if we're being honest, all you need to do to get all of the money out of the top group is be the best by five percent. That's it. So if a, if Intel's the best at gaming performance by five percent, they don't need to push it anymore. After that, let's just show on a PowerPoint how big our efficiency gains are. Let's focus on making good laptop processors because we don't need to do anything in desktop. If the 3090 is 5% better than the 6900 XT, I guess everyone will just pay three grand for it on eBay. I don't know (laughs) why they will. I don't know why people justify that last 5%. But if you're literally the best and you can underline it, we're technically the strongest, people will pay whatever. So it's just, I just don't think it was a priority of Intel. Like you say, they could have clocked some of those Sandy Bridge ones above four gigahertz stock and made them 150 watt chips or more, but they just chose not to, right? And now they've been losing against inefficiency to AMD for like four or five years. So they're done (laughs) (laughs) worrying about efficiency. They need to win something or not lose everything. And I think now that's why they just throw efficiency to the wind on desktop because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter that much to people. What matters is they try to keep the gaming performance ground. Right. I mean, uh, the, uh, it's the market itself that kind of pushed Intel to do the higher turbo speeds. That's what people wanted. They want the raw performance. They don't really care on the desktop about efficiency or power usage. Mm-hmm. People may might care, well, but it's not like a fourth as, tier concern. Well, and, it's and, like and the, the people thing. that do care a lot about that, they're still locked processors at 65 watt TDPs if you really want a more efficient, lower power usage CPU and you don't want to manually tune a K1 yourself. Well, and uh, let's be honest, too, people that care about that, I'm I'm now someone that kind of does. I mean, a lot of it's just the fact that the processors and graphics cards I get don't give me 35% boosts anymore, so it's not worth my time, in my opinion, mm-hmm. or risking stability. I, I'll risk stability for 30% more performance sometimes, but 
not if I'm using my desktop to work on and not if it's a five to 10% boost. And, and, and at a certain point, I'm just starting to get happy with like, you know, around, I keep saying RTX 3070 performance. And so then if I'm happy with that performance, I probably want efficiency, but that means I'm not buying an enthusiast card anymore. I'm buying a mid range or a high end card. I, I think that there are people that care about efficiency is what I'm saying, but they're probably not buying the $2,000 products. Right. And so that's why you see all the enthusiast ones going insane. And in fact, I thought about it, you know, there's rumors that uh, it, my current perception still is that RDNA three is probably going to take the performance crown firmly next year. And that Lovelace is going to get close, but they might be like 20% weaker. And I'm not saying I'm 100% sure about that, but that seems to be still what the, everyone's thinking behind the scenes. Well, you know, there's rumors NVIDIA may push Lovelace to like 500 watts or something insane to try to tie AMD. You know, at the end of the day, they're probably only going to push the top SKU to 500 watts. And I can't imagine anyone who built a system for a 3090 doesn't have a power supply that can handle it, right? If you can handle a 350 watt chip or 400, or I mean, some of those AIB ones use 500 watts, mm-hmm. um, then you probably have a 1000 watt plus power supply. Mid-range people aren't going to do this, but in the high end, I think that's just kind of what the market's dictated. People are willing to pay for that, right? Yep. So that also transitions then I think well into this question. When did things start to feel different about, you said crazy high volume with Coffee Lake, early Coffee Lake, the 8700K. Did things already start to feel different around the 9900K or when did they start changing? Yeah, things felt different with the 9900K uh, for two reasons. One, until moved back to solder. So delitting de- mm-hmm. brought like a 20 degree average drop now down to about five degrees average. And two, it was the first time we had a bin with an AVX2 frequency below the stock all-core turbo. Mm-hmm. Now, so what this is here is we could only get the worst 9900Ks to do 4.6 gigahertz, Prime 95. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people have a, can have a hard time understanding this, but the reason why is Intel does not validate the all-core turbo frequency at the, nope. the 300-some watts that are pooled under Prime 95. So if you know running these CPUs at stock, you turn on Prime 95, it's not going to run 4.7 turbo. It's going to throttle down, throttle down the voltage and mm-hmm. keep everything under control. Uh, the 9900K has exemplified that. All but our top bin had AVX2 frequency below the 5 gigahertz all-core turbo. There are, mm-hmm. there are not many of the 9900KS that could run full-blown Prime 95 and within the power limits that Intel uh, put in place. Yeah, so I guess that causes two problems for you, doesn't it? Number one, let's be honest, it's the top die that makes you the most money, and there's not a whole lot of them now. But also, it sounds like very few of them were even in that second tier, which you could probably sell at decent. So it's like, what do I do with all these other ones then? right? That we just tested and now have to resell. Am I wrong? Yeah. That's the hardest part about doing a binning business in the first place is the strategy for moving the below average CPUs. (laughs) Yeah. You'd almost think that moving forward, this would be a business perfectly paired with like a boutique 
PC builder, like only if they already are going to get a bunch they can afford to test on the side anyways. I mean, did you ever consider doing that? The problem is, though, if this PC builder is known to also have been CPUs, mm-hmm. you're not going to want to buy a PC from them with a 900K processor when you know they're taking the top half or whatever <laughs> and selling them for a premium. You're going to be guaranteed to get a bad CPU. So you mm-hmm. wouldn't want that to be known. <laughs> Ah, that's a good point. That's a very good point. I don't know. Maybe you would, maybe you wouldn't. I think it would all have to be this balance of how reasonably priced are your boutique PCs and how much extra money are you making on the side by selling these highly bend CPUs? I guess if there's not that many that you can bend that high anymore, maybe not that much extra to, you know, uh, make up for the fact that some people may be worried they're getting crap CPUs in their desktop. I mean, so I, I guess it was the it was so it wasn't Ryzen then, or was that just the other side of it as well that AMD's processors basically don't require it? We did Ryzen. We did Ryzen uh, first, second, and third gen. Um, mm-hmm. But of course, they're the perfect example of boost algorithms being so good that all core overclocking is just. You can get some all-core performance, but you're losing a lot of single-threaded from not getting the stock boosts. First gen wasn't as bad, as, from what I'm remembering, as far as doing, relative to how much more you could get out of it yeah, if you custom over compared to like even Ryzen 5000 today. Um, mm-hmm. You can't really do that much. The last ones, Ryzen 3000, that we did. Uh, the biggest problem we were having is trying to validate an all-core mm-hmm. frequency. We want complete stability. A lot of people or don't care as far as like the individual level, but we are also selling to businesses, and the businesses want stability. There's mm-hmm. no question about it. no like oh it can't it can pass this but not this. No, they want to know that these things are going to be running without issues. So uh, on Ryzen 3000, trying to run Prime 95 small FFTs, the, at stock, they would you know, boost way down. They would lower the frequency to like 3.8 or something and be in that power envelope. When I'm trying to do a manual overclock, I'm stuck below the normal all-core boost at stock. So I'm, I'm, mm. I'm doing stability testing, and it's lowering the like baseline what you would get all-core turbo. And so the, it kind of... I was really wishing for an AVX offset like Intel had as far as that goes for AMD, which they don't, which they don't really need. Their boost algorithm is so good. Mm -hmm. Right. And they don't have as many, uh, even when it's, you know, uh, my, my understanding is as well that even with AVX, AMDs just don't have this heat increase that Intel has that Intel and that was something I was always told before Zen 3 came out and as Zen 4 is coming out that AMD's goal when they add a new you know why does AMD take longer to add like the latest AVX to their processors typically than Intel it's because AMD tries to find a way to add it to the architecture where it doesn't double the heat you know (laughs) whereas Intel's it needs the offset I mean it's a crazy heat increase. I remember doing that, testing that with Haswell, and it was just nuts, like how much hotter it got running an AVX workload. No, I mean, if you run Prime 95 on the 16 core 3950X, it's hot. <laughs> yeah. If, if As long well, as you're not running at stock. At stock, it, it's all managed. But if you're doing a manual all-core overclock, you're, that that's going to be a fireball. Well, you know, what I also 
would guess, though, trying to bend like a Zen 2 processor. I have a 16-core 3950X. Um, I would imagine it was also very annoying because the, the best way you could really bend it, if we're being honest, because I mess with it a decent amount, is you j- you'd have to bend per core because mm-hmm. some of the cores do boost way higher. But here's the thing. You're running a business. You're trying to sell thousands of these units a month. I don't think you have the time. Right. You're, it's basically your, what I'm telling you is, oh, well, just do the amount of work of 16 processors for one processor to get a smaller gain than usual, right? I, I, I played around with, with some of it, trying to figure out other ways to do it and just... I, I would come up with a with a plan. It's like, and it, when, it, when it all comes said and done, we're getting a 100 megahertz increase or something. It's not, it's, mm-hmm. it's just. <laughs> Which, you know, to someone who's not incredibly informed and open-minded about the situation, they will see all core boosts that are below the turbo boost and they'll just go, oh, but you're selling one that's worse than stock. I bet there were yeah. a lot of people that see that and just aren't that impressed. Yeah. So, you, you know? know, there was still a lot of demand for us to do it. So we did them. And we sold mm-hmm. them. And there's some people that, yes, they want that last 50 megahertz. They will pay even, the, you know, so for them, we did it. But after the launch high of one or two months or whatever, demand basically just went all the way to nothing. <laughs> right. The early adopters that are like, hey, AMD is best now, so I'll pay for the best AMD. But then once you move past them, no you get want, to the no other one group wants of people. Spin CPUs past them. That's the enthusiast. Yeah. Gosh, Reese, why does Windows 10 Professional have to be so expensive? Don't listen to that, nerd. Listen to me. You can get all the great Windows and gaming keys you need at cdkeyoffers.com. That includes Steam, Origin, Uplay, PlayStation, PC, and many other keys, including Windows, Microsoft Word, and Professional. Use the offer code BROKENSILICON for 25% off all of these fancy Windows keys and dashing for 3% off everything on the website. One more time, that's go to cdkoffers.com. They're a fantastic sponsor of Moore's Law is Dead. Use offer code DOSHRINK for 3% off everything on the website and Broken Silicon for 25% off all Windows products. Now, back to the show. Let me transition to the next conversation with this reader mail. Balcom Alev writes in and he says, is overclocking a 5950X or an RTX 3080 worth it? Not for gaming even, but even for some productive tasks. Like, would you would you blanket say it's not worth overclocking some of these things anymore? So, yeah, when you're, we're talking about whether something's worth it or not, it's going to be a pretty subjective answer. But, you know, for me mm-hmm. personally, you're saying productivity tasks. I would enable PBO on the 5950X, pair it with a good DDR4 or 3600 kit, max out the power limit on 3080, and be done with it. When I hear productivity, I'm thinking in my head, you don't want to be sitting there trial and error, debugging crashes and blue screens. You just want something working. And the the performance increase that you get doing anything past what I just mentioned is pretty minimal to be worth the potential instability that you would face from any overclock system. I know sometimes I do renders for these long podcasts. Sometimes I still render the podcast myself, you know, when I have to once in a blue moon or some of my videos are like, you know, I've done videos that get to near 40 minutes before and they have tons of graphics on screen. Some of those can take 
a while to render. I, I can't afford to like, if I need to get a video out one night, you know, and then I also have like a family obligation or something. <laughs> I can't afford to like say, oh yeah, I'll be ready for dinner at seven. Walk back upstairs to check how the render is doing. And it turns out it crashed. Like I just can't afford to have that to happen. And I would say also it's kind of all relative. It, the the goalposts keep moving, but let's just say you went back in time 10 years, you know, and it's like our examples of overclocking Sandy Bridge or like a 7970. It's like, would you risk stability a little bit to get 35% more performance? The answer is probably yes. yes. You know, but if the question is, would you risk a ton of stability like this thing probably isn't stable to have five percent more performance yeah i think the answer is no you know um and so when it comes to zen 2 the only thing i can recommend is tight memory timings do work and if you can get the infinity fabric to run at 1866 or 1900 megahertz i believe it is on zen 2 i think it's actually the same for desktop zen 3 then you can get a 10 to 15 percent boost but even then i bumped it down a bit because it pass all my stability tests, but I just, every now and then something would crash when I bumped down the fabric clock slightly, it just then never happened anymore. So that's another thing with Zen 2 that I've found is the stability testing required is absurd. Any, anything <laughs> it's when so you're complex. dealing with cache memory, infinity fabric, that all that stuff is very touchy on stability. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean... So I, I don't know. I can't say it's not worth it anymore. Look at RDNA 2. It's a pretty good overclocker. But, but you know, even then, that 6800 XT I tested, it seemed like it was kind of a golden sample. Uh, I got it to like 2.75 gigahertz. Um, the way I did that is I just went into Radeon Wattman and moved the bar all the way over <laughs> <laughs> and then moved the power limit up. And did it work? Oh, let me bump it down 50 megahertz from 2800. Oh, now it's good. All right, I'm done. Because it's like, uh, that's already so close to maxing it out anyways. I just don't see how it's worth it. And, and in my 7970, I basically did the same thing in Afterburner. I have it at stock voltage. I was like, how high does the memory go? I actually overclock memory first these days because I feel like you get more gains, especially mm -hmm. with Ampere out of that. And I'm like, oh, it stops at like 1100 megahertz or whatever. It's stable. All right, let me bump up the core 40 megahertz. I'm done. You know, 10% uh, boost in performance. I don't need to do anything, right? It boots up overclocked, but I'm not spending that time <laughs> where I know each temperature crashes like I do with my 7970. And I mean, I don't know. Would you agree? I feel like that's kind of going to more and more be the norm that overclocking just isn't worth it for most products. There will always be some that are, but yeah, I, I, it's, it's pretty clear. That's the general direction. Um, well, and let me add this as well. The boosting algorithms they do now, and I've heard rumors for a while that RDNA 3 may be able to do like per work group voltages and like really right. complex. Like they might literally be able to run. I don't even know that they're going to be called. Really, RDNA 2 doesn't have compute units. They have work groups, to be honest. They just still use CU because they wanted to sound analogous to their previous gens. Um, but like they may have per like work group clock speeds even. And what people and that sounds very similar to per core clock speeds in Zen 2 that are dynamically moving around. It, it's not crazy to think they'd be able to do that eventually. You know, I think it's just worth remembering that it doesn't even really cost you performance anymore. Like you could have a sample that's used to be 10% worse than the best samples, but the fact that most programs only need one or two of the cores or in a graphics card, some of the CUs or work groups are less utilized than others. 
it, you're not the way they're boosting now. They actually get it. Really, isn't just that they're overclocked out of the box. They really are getting more out of the silicon as well. Yep, it's it's a good thing for consumers. You're getting more performance that because you can't yourself come up with a very complex boost algor- algorithm like these things are heading towards. So they're doing the work for you as far as like what would be overclocking in the past. And in a way better than we ever right. could have, right? You know, um, like I see people worried about Alder Lake and like, oh, it's going to have little cores and big cores. It's like, don't you guys understand that probably forever in every game, there will be at least one core that's used 10% more than the others or something like that. Having weaker and better cores, is just kind of common sense. And they're going to maximize which programs using which one. I mean, I, I don't know. Let me, before I get into that though, let me bring up another reader mail here from Kent Gain. He says, hello, Mr. Law is dead and Mr. Lottery. Silicon Lottery provided a service to the industry by publishing high sample size bending statistics on most consumer CPUs, providing the most complete picture of where CPU landed on the spectrum. With the increased trend of review samples leaning more and more golden, do you think that CPU marketing will devolve into being as misleading, if not worse than 2018? So I, I don't think this is a problem that's going to go away it you know a lot of it falls on the hands of reviewers to better inform their viewers about what the silicon lottery is when they're covering anything that's overclocked and that the viewers should not go in expecting to get this overclock that they're showing um reviewers could also do a better job with stability testing i know if you go from review to review yes overclock results we validate anything from cinebench to prime 95 small fts if so a reviewer testing with Cinebench might show a 5.3 gigahertz overclock and show that this was capable of that same CPU. In other hand, a reviewer running Prime 95 might say, oh, it's offset of 5 gigahertz. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And in my GPU reviews, I only do what, because I took a while to do my GPU reviews. I only do what I've had running 24-7 for over a week. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I'm like, no, this is because I think it's unfair to show the top overclock. But I also think it's unfair to show no overclock because I think most of my viewers probably overclock. Yeah, everyone wants to know, but it, um, mm-hmm. you know, if if all reviewers could just like all get together in a little group chat somehow and come up with a little met- methodology that they would all use, so like over, you know, everyone runs an hour of Prime ninety five or an hour of Limpack or something, and we just see where everyone's CPUs fall. Um, you might even then see some silicon lottery difference between each of the review samples, but also uh, as far as a bigger picture of overclock changes from generation to generation, you'd be able to more clearly see how things are changing if, if everyone has some kind of consistent standard. Yeah, so another thing I'd add, though, is I think there's less golden samples sent to reviewers than people think, though. I don't think I've seen anything to indicate that that is heavily happening. Like, I think Linus Tech Tips literally did a video like when, you know, I wish I had the money to do some things. But at a certain point, though, once you get all of that money, there's crazy stuff you can do. He literally filmed a couple of his employees walk out of the studio all the way down several blocks by CPUs and filmed it the entire time showing receipts. So he's like, no, literally, there is no way like this is an undoctored video that we're going to upload so you can audit us. We literally filmed us walking to a store from our studio, buying three CPUs and then tested them. And we found that they roughly performed as well as whatever Intel sent us. I don't, I don't think, I, I'm not saying there aren't golden samples sent. I think there are sometimes, especially by the way, from AIBs. But I don't think there's as many golden samples sent to reviewers as you'd 
think? Because a lot of reviewers have a big impetus to be able to prove there's a golden sample because that's another video they can I've do. I've had people come to me saying that, look, Intel is sending golden sample center to reviewers. They This reviewer has it running at 5.3 gigahertz, but you, Silicon Lottery, your top bin is 5.1. And the difference being is I'm doing yeah. very brutal stress testing, trying to have a complete stability list of settings. And the reviewer is running games. There's there's a mm-hmm. difference there, and they're not directly comparable. In which games, you know, like Division 2 just crashes if you overclock half the time, for example. You know, whereas you have these other game, and Battlefield, yes, I Battlefield. find, multiplayer. Get on Battlefield multiplayer and let it spectate for an hour. That'll tell you, that's a very good quick test of if your overclock's actually stable. But then, now, you know, I don't know, right? I'll play a game like I'm trying to think any just kind of basically you get on, I don't know, probably like like uh, Max Payne 3 or something. That wasn't a very good test. <laughs> like it, it wouldn't, I could run. So that's an old game I know, but that's what I thought of. Significantly higher settings than like Battlefield 3 or Battlefield 4 multiplayer. Um, Clean Sweep writes in and he says, what do you think the future of Tim is going to be? Soldered IHSs seem to be the go-to for desktop now. We're also seeing liquid metal CP, liquid metal applied to CPUs and mass for laptops and consoles, right? Even the PS5 yep. uses liquid metal, or at least the first version did. Could we see liquid metal take over in desktop CPUs and maybe even GPUs as well? I could see it possibly come to GPUs, but people are probably not going to start using it on CPUs and mass unless we go back to not having integrated heat spreaders. Between the heat spreader mm-hmm. and the heat sink, there isn't much of a difference in performance in regards to liquid metal or having a high-performing thermal paste. It's only when applied to silicon dye that liquid metal really outperforms traditional thermal paste. With the GPU or the consoles or laptops, they are applying a heat sink directly to the mm-hmm. CPU dye in those cases. Well, and I, I would just say a low-hanging fruit for performance. If silicon, you know, if Moore's Law continues to slow down again or something, like a, a low-hanging fruit is just better cooling. You know, like we are re- we really were skimping on cooling, by the way, a decade ago, <laughs> like just ridiculously. But now, like my HP laptop, and it wasn't even the most expensive one. It wasn't like a Spectre or something. Like they used copper vapor chamber coolers and I think liquid metal, and they their HP's explanation literally was, we found that if we paid $10 more on the cooling, we could get our six core i5 to outperform Dell's eight core in their XPS. So like we might as well use better cooling if it lets our i5s perform like i7s. And we we were actually saving money. So I think you'll see, yeah, like some graphics cards where they don't want you to ever take the cooler off. Laptops, especially, usually people upgrade every few years there. But I think mid-range products are probably going to use Tim forever yeah. in mass. You know, PS5 is probably an exception. Yeah, I would agree. So moving forward, I have a question here from Aiden FS. If you kept running the binning surface service, how would you have handled the binning of little cores on Alder Lake? Do you think people will just disable the little cores when overclocking or will they try to overclock them too? And I guess this also leads me to, I think one of the reasons you shut down silicon lottery was because you weren't going to get alder lake on time i I, that was my expectation uh given everything that's going on i don't think we would be able to get enough alder lake cpus in within a couple months of launch uh to meet anywhere meet what people would want we have to get at least 100 
in to do any type of validation on a binning test. And with Ryzen 5000 CPUs, I, I placed some orders and delayed for six months because of all this pandemic stuff starting. And so I'm stuck mm. in the same position as everyone else trying to play games to get inventory. Like it's not something I can do to get enough CPUs in. I just have to sit yeah. and wait from the distributors, but the distributors are busy sending everything they have to Amazon Newegg to, to, because there's huge demand for it. So with Alder Lake, it's possible that there wouldn't be much of a supply issue, but as far as on my end, any time, anytime there is a supply issue, it's much worse for me. And if if mm-hmm. there's strict supply limit one per customer, that's okay for if they're in stock and people can get them. Limit one per customer doesn't do very much for me. Yeah, I, I want to be proud of the things I sell. And w- starting with Rocket Lake, it's it's a little bit hard to feel proud. I'm offering something substantial, mm. and it's just I, I feel like it's a good good end. We had a good run. Do you think Alder Lake would have had more room? And what would you have? Were you making plans ahead of time for how you would have been to Alder Lake for like, because I imagine it's just different. It's just, would you have been like, this one has really good little cores, but not the fastest big cores? Uh, yeah, we started working on plans. Um, it would have been likely we would only bend the big cores and just leave mm-hmm. the little cores as is, focus on just getting the better single threaded out of the big cores, which. May also be well. I mean, it depends on your end user. They might want to overclock the little cores along with the big cores, but we don't even know how that's going to work, right. though, right? I, I've heard that they may like hard limit it to three point nine gigahertz on the little cores, so I don't even know if you right. can. And I don't. I, I just don't think even if you're wanting to overclock both, overclocking those little cores, pushing really hard on them, is going to probably reduce the max overclock you get on the big cores from all the additional heat yes. that's coming out of them. So I think Mm -hmm. most people are going to want to focus on those big cores. So are you thinking this will be something you start again? Or is there things going on in the back of your head? Like, you know, maybe we do a GPU service in the future. Or is it just like, because like, I let's be honest, I run my own business. It's a lot of work. Are are you just not even sure right now? And you're like, you know what? I need a break. Well, if an opportunity is there, I'm going to take it. If, If new processor comes out or the graphics card we've looked at graphics cards before it's never really been something that we could make sense on paper but you know if something happens there's huge overclock variance is basically what we're looking for if i see that you know i'm gonna i already know everything i know i can start this thing back up within a month and just be ready to go again um mm-hmm. And you have someone else that you can hire again to help you, and it's like pretty simple to start up again. Yeah, I mean, but right, but right now that's it. It's like we'll see. Yeah, that's pretty much where I am. I mean, I've done so. For example, um, as far as like you know, overclocking becoming less of a thing, people might try to shift towards maybe making some exotic cooling solutions less exotic, more mainstream. Mm-hmm. Intel's already dipped their foot in this with their little cryo cooler. Yeah. It's a good idea in theory, but poor in execution because those cryo coolers cannot handle the power output of Intel CPUs and all core workloads. So they perform really bad if you're going to load up all the cores. But that hmm. type of thing is a way to unlock more performance, keep lowering that temperature down. We have um, some prototype chill boxes here. Uh, if you're not familiar with what a chill box is basically you put your computer parts in a radiator inside of an insulated box you then have a chiller that cools a liquid below zero degrees celsius like glycol 
you move that liquid through a water cooling loop, goes into the insulated box, into the radiator, to the CPU block, GPU block. That radiator keeps the inside of the box the same temperature as the coolant in the loop. So you don't have mm -hmm. any condensation issues. So mm. we had that all set up and working. We were able to keep uh, temperature at negative 30 Celsius under full load on the CPU and GPU. And that mm. is a big overclock difference, working with negative yes. 30 liquid versus your 25 degree water. E even with modern architectures, I'm sure you could like start binning, for example, right, 6900 XTs to like three gigahertz or something and then selling them out of the box or I guess pre-built with a chiller in a carefully packaged and it's like, so this system runs at three gigahertz, right. dude. So, you know. So, you know, I, I, there's a lot of stuff and there's always stuff going on in my head and I have lots of stuff that I'm going to probably be tackling working on in the future. Well, I mean, what I would say is definitely let me know if there's a product. I will do <laughs> videos on it because this is something that frankly, I can't believe doesn't exist yet. I can't believe some company hasn't figured this out. And I don't want to diminish the work required. It's hard to do this in a way that's stable and won't break all the components. But it's not impossible, guys. So I, I'm really kind of blown away. I, I have to assume it just comes down to mass market costs. Like they can't put this cooler in a laptop. So there goes that, you know, market share. You know, I, they're not putting it in a console too expensive. That's why I would assume it doesn't exist yet is like you don't see people with the true big money like HP, Dell, or, you know, someone like them throwing money around to try to make it or into. But I'm still kind of surprised Intel or AMD hasn't really gone for it yet. Yeah. I'm I think they're in the future, next 10 years or something, there probably will be a more push into this area oh, yeah. because it's the next, you know, if, if boost algorithms are maxing out the silicon, the next best thing we need to do to get more performance, as far as like an enthusiast perspective, I don't think your mom or dad are going to have a freaking chiller next to their computer or anything, but as far as... Maybe in 20 <laughs> years, you know, maybe they'll make some micro one that's just in, in you know, an all-in-one Mac. <laughs> you know, maybe Mac will just start finding a way to do it they have tons of money, but I, I, we're very far away yeah. from that being a mainstream stuff. Yeah. Let me know though, if you get that working, I want to see it then <laughs> because that that's really interesting. But as we move forward then here, uh, I've just got a, you are clearly an enthusiast. I mean, I talked to you before we recorded kind of that early phone call I do as a screening to make sure who I'm talking to isn't a crazy person, you know, and can talk for at least a few sentences. Um, and you really do seem to follow a lot of the you know, gaming PC hardware news. So I guess, let me ask this reader mail here. Kenahoon25 writes, and he says, Hey, Tom and guest, thanks for all of the work you both have done for the CPU market and gaming. I wish you luck in your next endeavors. My question is, how do you feel Zen 3D, Ryzen 5, and 7, specifically, not just Ryzen 9, will stack up against things like the i5-12600K and the lower SKUs? I just have a hard time seeing six and eight cores stacking up against six plus four and eight plus four, especially with Raptor like doubling the small cores again next year. Again, thanks for everything. So so how do you believe Zen 3D? And let's kind of set the stage here, right? Zen 3D is, let's just say it's 15% better than what we have now. 
That's it. Let's just call it 15% better across the board for argument's sake. I'm sure there will be some you know, intricacies to when that is or isn't true. I'm sure there'll be some times where a Zen 3D, you know, a Zen 3 chip with Vcash on it performs more than 15% better in some applications. Um, but let's say it's 15%. And let's also just take Alder Lake and say, hey, let's just, let's not try to put too many numbers on it. But let's say it does beat Zen 3 solidly double digits in gaming performance and and in single core workloads, and in in multi-threaded, it at least trades blows with the top Zen 3 chip. How do you think AMD is going to position their like 5600X3D, I don't know what they'll call it, you know, and 5800XT or whatever? So in the case of like an Alder Lake i5, instead of thinking six big and four little cores, try to think of it as 10 average cores with 16 threads. So if AMD mm-hmm. is competing in that same price slot with a six-core, 12-thread CPU, it's easy to see that Intel is going to be winning on multi-threaded performance there. Um, on top of the IAPC gains from Golden Cove for single-threaded performance, you know, Intel is going to be competitive here. AMD might try to respond changing up core counts. I'm not entirely sure what they will do. Right. And I think, because I did a bit, I don't know if you saw that, I I did a leak on the i5-12600K, which I've done Alder Lake leaks for years, but I specifically highlighted what I could learn about the i5-12600K because I just felt like this is something people are entirely sleeping on here. Everyone's talking about, will the top i9 beat the 5950X and everything? Has anyone considered that I can now 100% confirm at least the K model of the i5, not the ones below, but the K model of the i5 is six plus four. I mean, it's going to beat the 5800X thing, guys. <laughs> like it is. <laughs> it has six cores that are like mm, at least 10 to 20% better than the 5800X's cores. That alone should make it almost tie it. Now I had four little cores. And as far as we know, you know, as reported by me for a while, but now confirmed by Intel and press slides, the little cores are as good or better than Skylake, at, at least in multi-threaded workloads, right. right? At least when that's not the only cores you have. So it's basically a Skylake i5 plus a five gigahertz Zen 3 or better. Like, that's going to beat the 5800X. Yep. That's, I mean, that's, it seems pretty clear. <laughs> right. And it's like, I guess there's not that much more to say about it, you know? In terms of his actual question, which is what AMD will do, honestly, it wouldn't surprise me. So far, what I'm told is internally AMD's just calling these Zen 3D, which is all it is. It is literally, this is not Zen 3 Plus. This is literally Zen 3 CCDs, and they put Vcash on it. This is not a new architecture. They just only got Vcash working in a mass manufacturing way like half a year ago. So... This they might call it like fifty six hundred XTs and stuff, but if I was AMD, I would try to paper launch this this year, like as soon as possible, and I would make it a new series because it kind of sounds like Zen Four ain't coming out till quarter three next year. If that's true, and you can launch in January, that's long enough for a generation. I would, I would say they should call it the six thousand series, and I would say that the top model should be the six nine fifty X with V cash, and then there's you know your sixty nine hundred. XT or something. And I would 
you know, consider making the 6800 XT have 12 cores or something, you know, and consider may or and then having like or at least this yeah 6800 x is that now the same now yeah well i point that out in a recent video i really wish amd had a different naming scheme because they're gonna keep becoming confusing i'm sorry 6800 x you know um i I think they should consider like making the 6600 x have eight cores maybe without the cache right but then they have like a 6700 that has v cache and or something because they're they're gonna have to lower prices. That's the answer, right? They have to, they're, or change up which cores are in each SKU, which I think would behoove them. Because if they increase the core counts of each tier, well, perfect. Then you're justified to raise prices if Zen Four is better and has well, Zen Four probably won't increase cores though. So yeah. All right. So a fi- few final questions on overclocking over the next few years. The Medium Lobster writes in and he says, with manual overclocking becoming more and more obsolete for all but the highest enthusiast parts, do you think extreme overclocking competitions will begin to die out as it boils down to exclusively silicon lottery of the chips or will XOC participants find new ways to squeeze performance out of silicon? I don't think extreme overclocking, like using liquid nitrogen, is going to go anywhere. Uh, they're not really affected by the improved boosting algorithms that are affecting manual overclocks. If anything, overclocking may move more commonly towards that extreme end. Um, right. If you're not doing extreme, it's not even right. worth bothering. I, I've never been that big on the extreme overclocking myself. I've always been really interested on 24-7 performance. So, yeah, I, I just, I think that'll keep going on. I think reading that question out loud again, I agree. I think that the only thing I will say is that in terms of like headlines, you know, I remember when Bulldozer launched and AMD made a big deal that they got one of them to eight gigahertz. Mm-hmm. A lot of the extreme overclocking competitions I see now that most of the CPUs seem to top at around six to seven. So it's funny how you're seeing like five gigahertz pushed in consumer products now. In the extreme overclocking, that band seems to be coming down a bit as well. So the numbers are less flashy, but still, if Extreme overclocking, it's about winning by a megahertz. So (laughs) at the end of the day, you could actually argue, even though the numbers aren't as big, the wins are more impressive because they're harder to get. And I mean, the raw performance of the CPUs at those frequencies, a rocket lake at seven gigahertz compared to bulldozer at eight gigahertz, you know, the rocket lake has a lot more performance (laughs) when you're talking about under liquid nitrogen. Well, yeah, I mean... Which is something where I keep seeing people ask, when are we going to go above whatever gigahertz or this or that? And it's like, I don't know, maybe with graphing, you know, maybe we will. But everyone I talk to, they're like, dude, we're going to be on silicon for the next decade at least. So don't count on any of this anytime soon. And at the end of the day, I think people doubted we'll get big IPC increases because of the stagnation from Intel for a while where they really just focused on other stuff. Sometimes you know, better graphics. Sometimes they just spent $7 billion on McAfee for some reason. But at the end of the day, what we've seen when AMD competes again, and now I, I was just talking to someone about this earlier this morning, like, I really think Apple's coming for everyone. I don't think people understand that, like, a- Apple's making CPUs now. From what I'm hearing, that they're planning to start competing in server. Um, and then you have NVIDIA trying to buy ARM. There's more competition for the next decade for sure. And as far as we can tell, that means 10 to 20% IPC increases at least every year. So they keep managing to find ways to do it. And (laughs) gigahertz doesn't really matter. You know, just the performance. 
Yep. So is there anything else you wanted to talk about while you're here? I mean, I think we covered this, the, the start of your, you know, website, what, how it went, what made you decide to close it, your thoughts on some upcoming products. Any, is there anything else you wanted to discuss? No, I'm not really. I think we covered most of everything, unless there's anything else you could think of. I don't think so. I think this was, I just want to thank you for coming on on such short notice. It's funny. I saw that website close and I was like, I, you know, I didn't buy any from it, but I was like, this was always at least useful for the statistics. And I, everyone in some enthusiast circle had bought one of your chips, um, at least in the circles I run, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, which is truly enthusiast. Um, and it left a pretty big impact, at least on the people that follow this stuff closely and talk the most about it. And so when I saw it close, I was like, God, I wonder if this guy can come on. And yeah, I just really want to, you know, thanks for doing that, offering that service. And thanks for coming on on such short notice. You know, it definitely let me know if you start another business, like I would, (laughs) I'd be very interested in taking a look at it. And because that, that's something that's that's fascinating to me. And you managed to do this without even, you know, <laughs> think, you know, right. Yeah. Am I wrong? You didn't have huge expectations. Right. You were like, oh, it, yep. it worked. Yeah, I, I'm really, really proud of everything I did. And it is tear jerking to shut down because it's it's a real big part of, you know, me. A lot of, you know, the people I talk to, they know me as the Silicon Lottery guy. So yeah, I, I'm I'm proud and I'm happy of everything I did with it. And I got to talk with so many people that are so excited about the same things I'm excited about. And that was really great too. And I am sorry. I, I know people are disappointed. I, I get the emails in and, you know, at some point though, I've just, this is no longer a sustainable thing on my end. So. Mm-hmm. I can understand everything you're probably considering when you decide to start or end something. I'm sure you were thinking for a while beforehand too, like, man, this is becoming a lot of work. And when it makes sense, you'll do yep. it again though, right? And you'll now know when to, when it's worth it right away and be able to start it up faster. Like, who knows, maybe you'll get some deal with a bunch of Alder Lake chips and it's like, well, maybe we do a run for a month of them or something, you know? So this isn't to say that this can't or won't ever happen again. And from the sounds of it, you're working on much bigger ideas anyway. So... I, I guess at the very least, what I would also say to the people that are disappointed is it's like, well, just remember how good they are now right. though, in stock, right? Don't forget that. Like even the worst bins of Zen 2 are with a couple percentage, honestly, if you turn PBO on at the top. Yep. All right. So again, thank you for coming on. I would say thank you for everybody who listens. You know, remember, tell your friends about us, give us reviews on podcast apps and subscribe. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. This podcast was brought to you by the YouTube channel and website Moore's Law is Dead. Moore's Law is Dead and Broken Silicon are trademarks of their creator, Tom. That guy is me, and I am indeed the creator, editor, writer, and showrunner of Moore's Law is Dead podcast videos, articles, and other media. However, I don't do this alone. Moore's Law is Dead is a team with Broken Silicon co-hosted by my brother, Dan. Audio editing by Gerard Cortez and special assistance by Carbon Cry. Find all of our information, including the information of sponsors you can support, at www.moreslawsdead.com. If you would like to send fan mail or hardware to us, please mail parcels to Moore's Laws Dead at P.O. Box 60632 in Nashville, Tennessee, zip code 37206. And speaking of fans, 
Patrons are what makes Moore's Laws Dead content possible. The aging business model of spamming ads all over the content is dying. The future of media will be built on fans paying for the content they actually want to exist. And so if you have the extra money, but only if you do, please consider supporting us. For just $2 a month, you get access to the exclusive podcast, Die Shrink, voting on subjects of future podcast episodes, the ability to have your questions read aloud on Broken Silicon, Die Shrink, and Loose Ends, and of course, access to the Moore's Laws Dead Discord full of like-minded people who would love to meet you and talk to you about computer hardware. I am one of them. Additionally, higher tiers get access to ad-free episodes of Broken Silicon, the entire back catalog of Flyover State's podcasts and other projects, Moore's Laws that is done, and thanks in the credits of videos and other perks as well. And hey, if you can't afford to support us, please do share Moore's Laws Dead videos and podcasts with friends and family on social media, Reddit, and forums. And give Broken Silicon a five-star review on Apple Podcast or your preferred podcast app. All of this really does help so much. And if you'd like to advertise on the podcast, hire Tom for consulting, or are a person of interest who would like to be a guest, please reach out to the email address mlhbdead at gmail.com. But as I said, this podcast would not be possible without its patrons supporting it. And so now it is time to give a personal thanks to the greatest of the fans. The following supporters are at the 10 gigahertz or higher producer levels. Brad Medlin, Telos, GUK, Benny Berlin, Justin Yant, Thomas Rupp, I Love You, Lynn, Jim, Ivan K, Tom Bailey, Muhammad Al-Kawari, Frederick Lau, MetroCore, Justin Parrish, Zachary Martin, Terrence Herod, Drita Full, Phil S, D31337, Antics, The Ninth Dude, Jesse Jaskowiak, Josh Law, JB Jing, Travis Gooding, The Mechanical Philosopher, Lebo Kinkilo, Fatboy Distro, Daniel Hyde, A Guy in PA81, Nathan Mose, Co-Addict, Matt Salem, Aaron Close, Juan Garcia, Matthew Len Davazo, My Name is Nobody, Judson N, Alethros, Jensen Wang, Hey There's a Kitty, Greg T. Wanchuk, Ivan 214, John Jameson, Benjamin Cannon, Matthew Lane, Mark Raidmaker, Jen Rauner, Chris Licata, Michael McGee, Ali Robertson, Jonathan, Patrick Rowe, Evan Dingle, Dominique Koch, Stefan, Original Ross, Anthony Greffa, Joaquin Hagen, Total Silo, Sol Connor, Michael Casa, Andrew S., C. Chitz, Aaron Keith, Gregory S. Ecker, Endless Loggins, Tom San Filippo, Justice Brennan, Zoot Suit Taylor, Trevor Power, Sue, Alenia, Nanan, Daniel Nishbal, Franco Fredrik, Dan Galanowski, Ian Clifford, Axel Cisneros, Leighton Perry, Joseph Kerman, Brett Summers, Blake, Donovan Russell, Noah Nicolella, Zlicky, Matt and Porsche, David Cowden, Ricky Tan, Ulam, Patrick J.S., Justin Staple, Freddie Canales Jr., Stephen Coates, Kiwi Phil, Brucha, Jeremy So, Mitchell Pell, Brett Summers, Eddie Del Castile, Joseph Loria, Luis Correa, Deke, Cheesy Ramen, Tyler Lindley, Tim Robbins, Jake Dude 23, Brian Riggleman, Justin Gower, Caillou, Mark Kelly, Dave McCoy, Valko Malev, Gabe Lagner, Ronnie, Kaliuk, Souza, Michael Deaton, MJB1, Maurice Courtois, Wesley Sager, Sarcastro, Mai Sharona, Y. Troy, Roman W. William W. Draper, Air Rats, Wakir Khan, Henry Zhang, Stephen Hart, Christopher A. Butler, Greg, Peter Moore, Amiable Chief, Justin Thomas, Sam Miller, Sammy Malas, James Anderson, Shakir, Nick Raken, Holden Mobley, Matthew Lazier, Arpit Sharma, Mead and Pork, Jimmy and G. Mads, Gordon Freeman, Benjamin Oshley, Mark Mitchell, Shield TV, Couteau, Aaron, John Winsick, Sam Benson, and thank you to Sahara for the music. <laughs>